Well, Father John Maria Davini, welcome to Power and Witness. Good to be with you, Father Mark. Good to be here at EWTN and in Birmingham. You're a Dominican priest from the province of St. Joseph, and you were born and raised in Clinton, uh, New Jersey, and you we just gave a, a retreat to the Dominican Sisters, a, a cloistered group of nuns in Marbury, Alabama. As you said, uh, Central Alabama. How did that go? How was, your, how was your week with them? It was wonderful. Uh, it was, like I said, it was, I was the retreat master and it was more of a retreat for me, I think, than the nuns. Uh, friars can get so busy, as you know, and, and forget about the deep, uh, importance of, of getting away, you know. Actually, that was fascinating. I was in Assisi, and you've, I imagine you've been there. I, I didn't realize how much Francis got away. Uh, mm. he, he actually would go away for a couple of months at a time mm. yeah. in, into the woods. Like yeah. Alverna, I think yeah. he made long retreats there. Yeah. I had no, I always just thought he was, yes, of course, silence and time yeah. and prayer, yeah. but I didn't realize he actually got off the grid, as we say <laughs> nowadays. You know, there was no grid back then. <laughs> But yes, yeah, so the Dominican Order has uh, contemplative nuns. St. Dominic, our founder, you know, friend of uh, St. Francis, he started the nuns first because he wanted cloistered women who had been victims, really, of the Albigensian heresy. It was almost like a cult, and it denied what was good about the body and said only the spirit mattered. And that's why after the Dominican Order came, uh, the joke is... Uh, uh, like, what was it? The Jesuits were started for the, to help the Counter-Reformation efforts, mm -hmm. and of course, we still have Protestants, but then the Dominicans were started to help quash the Albigensians, and now the joke is, what's an Albigensian? You know, so, <laughs> so we're a little successful. Successful, yeah. but, but listen, it, it, it pokes its head up in other ways in our modern times. Um, well, too, like the Catechism, I think it quotes most Augustine and St. Thomas. I forgot which is which. I want to say is Augustine Ratzinger was an Augustinian. That's so correct. That it, yeah, but, and he actually, yeah. when Dominicans worked at the CDF with the late Pope Benedict, uh, one of our Dominicans said he would be reminded by Pope then Cardinal Ratzinger, uh -huh. Pope Benedict, uh, "Do not forget, I am a, I am an Augustinian. I'm not a Thomist." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this this monastery, which I know is dear friends with with the MFVAs up here in Alabama. Um, it was the first integrated monastery, Catholic monastery for women in the United States. Was so it? it was started in 1944. Actually, mm -hmm. while I was there this week, here we are, whenever people are listening to us, it's the last week of August, first mm -hmm. week of September here. And believe it or not, they celebrated their enclosure, the 79th anniversary of really the, the essence, the enclosing of the monastery mm -hmm. to the public, on the Feast of St. Augustine, 19. 44. So next year, uh, 24, mm. there'll be 80 years uh, in rural Alabama yeah. and uh, the first monastery for black and white vocations in the U.S. Yeah. And, uh, and, and their role is to pray, like I said, for the, not just the, ch the world, the church obviously is contemplatives do, just like the poor Claire's, you know, with the Franciscans, but to pray for the efficacy and the work of the brothers. So, so of course, they can't go on a retreat the way you and I can and those of us who can leave the cloister. And so the retreat comes to them. And mm. we spent, uh, they have to buy the constitutions of the Dominican nuns. They have to have eight full days of retreat. Mm. And uh, we had uh, traditionally what we'd call two conferences a day, one in the morning, one in the evening. We had mass. And uh, it was just a beautiful time to, to preach to them as their brother in St. Dominic and to uh, uh, give them uh, hopefully a little insight into the life. Yeah. 
And who are some of your brother Dominicans that have come down to preach to them? Sure. So we there are four Dominican provinces in the U.S., wow. and we're in the southern province technically down here. And uh, the friars who've come down over the years um, to give them either conferences, because we have brothers who will go teach the nuns, scripture, theology, mm. philosophy. Uh, but the friars who've come down, um, uh, most recently, uh, a father by the name of Father Sebastian White, he's the current editor of the Magnificat, uh, right. the little liturgical um, book and aid that's very popular. Also, uh, Father James Brent, he is a, a philosophy professor up in Washington, D.C., and uh, Dominican as well. Mm -hmm. uh, he also, I'm trying to think, uh, they were sharing with some of the other names. Did Father White recently, was he recently on the network? Here? I think Fa the, Father Thomas Joseph White, right? Is that who you're speaking? Oh, Sebastian Sebastian White, White yeah. yeah. That's a good question. So has he just recently come out with a book on the Gospels or something? Or? Uh, you know, I don't know. Now, there's okay. a Father Thomas Joseph White. He's the current rector of the Angelicum, okay. and he's quite proficient and prolific. Mm -hmm. I wonder if he... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, no, they've had uh, several Dominicans come yeah. through uh, uh, over the last 30 years especially. But now they're diocesan. It's interesting. They were founded in the diocese. The original charism, when they were founded, was a group of Dominican monasteries throughout the U.S. that would pray the rosary perpetually. Mm -hmm. So they had a 24-7 honor guard, they would call it, of Our Lady. Mm -hmm. It was founded by a French Dominican in the late 1800s who came over to the yeah. United States and ended up going to branch off to about 20 different monasteries. And uh, they all were to pray the rosary perpetually. Now, of course, as times change, vocations dwindled, frankly, yeah. they now keep their guard about half the day, about 12 hours. You know, I think I came in 1994, and I think they were still doing that. And I think they were even praying the Dominican office, like the Dominican rite Cor in Latin. Correct. They, they do chant in Latin down there. Yeah. 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 So and it was like, I mean, so the old office was much longer, right? Yeah, I mean, they, yeah. they think you did 150 psalms a week, right? Correct, and the nuns, Father Marker, they're in there at six in the morning, then for matins and laws, we call it, then they're in at seven again, then they're in at 11 in the morning, then they're back in at three, then they're back in at 5.30, six o'clock, and then they're back in at eight. So they have the full, what we call divine office, monastic office, all six parts of the day. Does that intimidate you, going to, to preach the gospel to these prayerful <laughs> It does a little bit, you know? I, I, I often think like they're up, and here I am in the priest's wing next to it, I'm hearing them chanting as I'm sipping my coffee, praying the divine, my own divine office on my phone. We call it coffee, you know, coffee and office, coffee. And uh, I'm thinking, oh, I'm so... I have such a luxurious life. Shame on me. I, I can't even get up and go be with them right now. You know. Well, I say that because we go down there and preach sometimes. Yeah. And I, I always think, you know, you think they're better, more well-read than I. And, you know, am I, is this just seems superficial, what I'm saying to them? <laughs> you, know, you always kind of wonder that. But No, I think, um, first of all, there is a bond. And, I, and this is a question maybe I can ask you. So... Dominic founding the monastic women first, then, of course, the friars, 
Then actually, and St. Catherine was one of these, what we called active sisters, third order sisters. Would so, they wear a habit in the world, like Catherine of Siena? She would have. In uh -huh. her time, she would have been allowed to wear a religious habit. Now uh -huh. there's lay people who are in what we call the third order, who mm -hmm. can be buried in a habit, but they wouldn't wear a habit out there. But we do have active sisters, uh, right. let's say quite notably the uh, Nashville Dominican sisters and of course, there's many, uh, Rose Hawthorne, uh, the Cis Dominican sisters who take care of those, the cancerous poor, uh, daughter of Nathaniel Hawthorne. So um, they'll be in habits, but they're obviously active. So to answer your question, there is a little bit of a deeper bond between the nuns of the order as the and the friars. Like, Because here would be my question for you. So is there a when you have encountered poor Claire's and you're with, yeah, as mother was in, in you know, the monastery down here in Hansville, versus when you've met active Franciscan sisters. Uh, I don't know how many active orders there are, but mm. I, we feel a little deeper bond with the contemplative mm. nuns. I don't know, is it similar yeah. for the poor Claire's? Well, for us, certainly, because Mother Angelica is our founders sure. and yeah. has a love for adoration. I think that's part of our charism is adoration. We say the office before the exposed blessed sacrament. And so, yeah, I mean, I definitely, I feel like we speak the same language when I'm up in Hansville and stuff. I, I, you know, you do, you do feel like, you know, like they're further along in contemplation and prayer. <laughs> and it's like, but you know, they're always very grateful for our being up there and preaching. So I think, you know, God uses the office, I guess, to, to bless them. Even though, I mean, I think the same kind of thoughts about them. I'm sure. saying, you know, they're reading a lot more than I'm reading right now in my life, you know, and they're <laughs> praying you, a lot more. You know, <laughs> I, I'll share this with the listeners, Father Mark. You know, being with, I've visited plenty of Dominican monasteries. Mm -hmm. I've made personal retreats with nuns mm -hmm. for five days, like in their priest quarters. Um, I've spent an overnight. I've given them a day of reflection, offered mass, just as you have for nuns. Mm -hmm. But I realize, Father Mark, They've actually got a pretty busy day. I mean, mm. almost every hour is scheduled with yeah, something. Yeah. So, okay, this is prayers. Now we go to meals. Then right. we go to an hour of your personal work responsibility right, in the monastery. Right. Uh, then there is an hour of uh, recreation, whatever. Right. I mean, so they actually have a pretty full day. You're pretty right. You're right. Yeah. 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 It's not... Just sitting around, kind of, you know, just looking at the sky. And, and the scriptorium or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, <laughs> what's it say on the ascension? You know, why are you standing there looking at the sky? Get to work, you know. Yeah. Is that a strange scripture passage? It is. In Ma Matthew, right? After the Great Commission, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just always feel like it might be a more liberal interpretation. Was, hey, we see we're not supposed to be praying all the time. We need to get out there and work. And That's do. right. Get to work. But I think there's a deeper mystery going on there. It's just, I, I, it's just worded kind of funny. I think you know? so, yeah. Maybe, maybe the maybe those who witnessed the ascension they were like drooling. They just couldn't understand. Like they were, <laughs> they were frozen. They were in shock. You know, yeah. snap out of it. <laughs> so you were uh, preaching to them about or giving a conferences on Gergou Lagrange and his. Correct. Tell us a little bit about that. So Father Garrigou Lagrange, Dominican friar, uh, was a well-beloved uh, uh, theologian in the last century. Uh, he was born in the late 1800s, died, uh, I think, either before or after, right around the council. And he taught um, a Frenchman, was uh, 
a Thomist and, and really loved like just, there's a couple of different ways to approach Thomism, but the preferred way is just to read Thomas. Like some people say, well, we'll read Thomas in light of this, or we'll look at this and read Thomas. Uh -huh. And then some theologians are like, no, just read Thomas. He took care of everything, <laughs> you know, just to... But that and, does bring up an interesting yeah. point because hasn't the interpreters have differed, right, throughout the centuries, maybe, a different emphasis and things? And, yeah, no, that yeah. is true. I mean, think about this. So St. Thomas Aquinas writes in the 12th century, mm -hmm. and he kind of gets in trouble with the church. I'm sorry, 13th century. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he, we're celebrating, actually, the 700 and the 800th anniversary. I should know this, uh, mm -hmm. but I mean, we're celebrating consecutively in the next years. The, his canonization, his death, and his birth. Mm. So I think it was the 750th anniversary of his canonization. No, I'm sorry, his birth. Mm -hmm. It'll be the 800th anniversary of his death, and I think the 700th anniversary of his canonization, okay. something like that order. And you know, during his time, his family wanted him to be uh, a monk at Monte Cassino, or I think Monte Cassino, one of the big mm -hmm. Benedictine abbeys in Italy. And he was like, no, I want to join this new group of friars, you yeah. know, Dominican St. Dominic Guzman. And he went, and then, of course, he was obviously quite gifted in theology and philosophy and his retention and interpretation. Mm -hmm. Really, that's why he's called the angelic doctor. And it, as you brought up earlier, it is fair to say that St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas are probably the two greatest minds in the church, mm -hmm. uh, you know, historically. And so he got in trouble at the time because he was taking the recently acquired Latin translations of the Greek Aristotle's Greek works. So we had had some Latin translations of Aristotle's mm -hmm. works, but not other works. Yeah. All of a sudden he gets a hold of these. They were preserved by Islam, right? That, yeah, yeah, exactly. Muslims. <laughs> no, it's so fun. I was yeah. thinking that yeah. while, just a few moments ago while we were yeah. saying it. Like, yeah, actually we, we owe it to the Muslims in Spain <laughs> for, for holding on to these uh, Aristotelian works that would end up getting translated into ah. Latin. And of course, he sees a gold mine in them and totally inspired by the Holy Spirit, right. where it's like, oh my gosh, we can take these philosophical concepts. Uh, that's where he gets transubstantiation from. Um, metaphysics after the physics, meaning after the physical world. So he, he gets all these things from Aristotle that he sees that can harmonize with the truths of the Catholic faith and explaining it. And then here's what he does, which is kind of brilliant with his Summa Theologica. He also was so smart and so well-versed in all the church fathers. So he then takes all the early church fathers, uh, Augustine included, uh, Gregory, um, you know, the list goes on. And he then starts to use their writings that had been passed around in academic circles with Aristotle, and he puts it all together. So over the centuries, people have been like, well, let's go back and look at the Church Fathers and Thomas at the same time. Mm -hmm. Or um, let's just look at Thomas uh, right, uh, right. specifically, or let's look at the other Greek philosophers and then Aristotle and then Thomas. So whereas kind of the pure Thomists, as Father Garrigou Lagrange was, was no, just, mm -hmm. just read Thomas. Everything <laughs> is there. You don't have to go to the other one. He did that for you already. <laughs> yeah. I remember I studied one. Did you go to Steubenville? No, uh, no, I, I didn't. Yeah. yeah. I studied, we did some pre-theology work there just over a summer. And I remember there was one philosophy professor that, you know, he was Augustinian kind of personalism and stuff. But I remember it seemed like he was, his, one of his life goals was to show how much like Thomas did use Plato. Because oh, sometimes yeah. it's presented 
you know, because he calls, then he call Aristotle like the great philosopher, the great one or something. Yeah, no, Aristotle actually, it's almost like, um, yeah, he, I mean, Thomas didn't canonize Aristotle, yeah, but yeah. he did realize that his natural reason was so gifted, of course, by God, obviously, right, but right. here he was, he was pagan, you know? Right, yeah. right. So no, you're right. Uh, Thomas did put Aristotle on an extremely high yeah, pedestal. In yeah. fact, in one of our stained glass windows in New York City, a beautiful church called St. Vincent Fair, we have Aristotle in a window, wow. uh, but he has a green halo around him instead of a, a golden <laughs> halo. <laughs> uh, but no, speaking of Plato, right? So, the, and, and believe me, also with the listeners too, I don't want people to think that I'm some highfalutin yeah, Dominican. Right, right, you know, right. I just, we were blessed to get a very good education. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't realize seminary was grad school till a Benedictine said, you know, we're in grad school, right? And I said, what do you mean? I just thought I'm in seminary. God, no, no, it's grad school. Me? Grad school? I never wanted to go to grad school. And then all of a sudden, after a week, yeah. I'm like, hey, I'm in grad school. <laughs> but um, Plato, the big thing that I, I mean, again, I know there's many guys who can talk to this more deeply, Father Mark, yeah, but yeah. Plato's big thing was... Um, a lot of like the trans, trans uh, uh, things that were transcendent, you know, right, the beautiful, right, the good, right. the true, mm -hmm. or like when you see a horse, that there is the 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 idea of horse in the in the divine mind, you know, right. and it and it. Oh, of course, he would say, um, uh, what did he say, Plato, like the participation in the form, right? Right. right. So. Um, well, there's this great painting by Raphael. Okay. We got a copy of it in our uh, library, but it, I forgot what it's called, but. Yeah, Plato and Aristotle walking like in some kind of placa, you know, yeah. a square. And and Aristotle, or Plato's pointing upwards, and Aristotle's pointing down at the ground, like like the location of the placement of those forms, and, universals. And, and you've got to, because I was yeah, just going to say yeah. the big thing with Aristotle was let's look at the created world around us, yeah, and derive things about reality. Right. from the created world. Whereas yeah. that's that's interesting to Raphael you say that yeah. because cause Plato's pointing, uh, if he's pointing up, they yeah. say, no, let's see what comes down right. from above. Right. And so, no, the, I mean, uh, Thomas quotes Plato a lot and, and he, has, he has a deep knowledge of Plato. So right. isn't it fascinating how Greek philosophy has influenced, you know, the universal church and what we owe to the Greeks? But yeah, why this incredible flowering of philosophy and like architecture and sculpture, sculpture. Yeah. yeah like why what was special about athens you know yeah. and because i because i you know i tell this story that i i was on one of these footprints of saint paul's trips and we oh, went oh wow yeah we went to athens and i had been actually been there as a teenager i was blessed by my grandparents parents to send me there but with a school trip you know but i you know obviously when you're older it strikes you more deeply but it I remember I saw it, you know, in the Parthenon, you go up on top of the Acropolis, there's the Parthenon, and it's been like bombed even by some crazy Italian general. <laughs> but it's like, <laughs> so it's been through, it's, you know, it's been, it's, it's greatly destroyed. But anyway, afterwards, we go down to this beautiful museum, ultra modern, but it looks magnificent at night, like from the outside. Sure. And we watched this film in there, they're talking about the Parthenon, and they said, they had some kind of phrase. They said it is like a living building or structure. And as soon as they said that, I said yes. And because they, they talked about like the architecture of it, there's, there's not like a straight line in it. They do all these tricks for perspective, like the columns are bowed out or these 
these steps that are made, you know, they're, they're bent somewhat in some kind of way to generate perspective. And it does, it looks different from other ancient buildings we saw on that trip that had a similar style. But there's something that just pops when you see it. It just, there is something that just pops, springs to life about it. And, I, and then, then you see like their sculpture. I mean, they have like, and you know, in the Renaissance, they're like, it's presented often as like, you know, this rebirth of ancient uh, Greece. And I'm thinking, what, that's, you know, that's 2000 years before, before Michelangelo. Yeah. yeah. These guys were doing realistic sculptures. Yeah. And uh, what happened in Athens sure. that that would happen, you know? Yeah, that, you know, the only thing I maybe, again, the historians know this, and there's guys who might be listening to this Father Mark one day, so I know the answer, but yeah. I'll throw this at you. One of the things, there was a, a German philosopher who was kind of Aristotelian to mystic, who lived in the last century, I think around the time of World War II, World War I. And I haven't read a lot of him, but um, the guy's name was Joseph Pieper. Oh, yeah. And... He has a famous little tract on leisure as the basis of culture. Right. So the necessity that man has the time for leisure to then think about these things or create these works of art. So maybe the Greeks, yeah, I mean, obviously they're probably warring like every other society. And forgive me, I don't know the total history of ancient Greece. I don't know barely any history of ancient Greece. <laughs> Here I sound so authoritative with you, Father Mark. Uh, on uh, well, that's what I was yeah. wondering. Yeah, if it was, but did they, they have time? Frankly, yeah, yeah. And then I mean, obviously it was. You know, they were successful, like whatever business and port, you know, an active port and all sure. this kind of stuff. So, trading, yeah. yeah, trading commerce and, but. Um, I, I wonder too that it, if they had a deep religious sense for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Because you know the Parthenon obviously you know, was a religious building, and um, sometimes I wonder about that motivation too. That could marshal and unite a people to contribute to build to do this. Yeah. I remember one time being in Paris, and we had this secular tour guide. You know, I'm sure he's a former Catholic, left the church. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but I remember he was talking about Notre Dame, and he said. I think it was built over 200 years. And it just kind of hit me. I thought, wow. It's like the product of a country to throw all its great artisans. You know, you could think of like Google. I remember going out to Google. We shot some little videos outside of Google in in the grass of the park. (laughs) They don't let you anywhere near the inside. But but we were given like reflections, you know, search for God or whatever. But I remember they were building this building it looked like something out of the movie Contact, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was like so scientific or science fiction looking and all this. And you think you could have like a great company in America that might flame out after so many decades or something. But when you talk about religion, you're talking about the long haul. Yeah. And you're like marshalling a people or uniting a people to contribute to this endeavor to build a beautiful cathedral over couple centuries and then to throw your best artisans at it and then their fathers and grandfathers who worked on it too you know yeah uh, yeah family of of masons or stone masons yeah 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 it's like there's this motivation that they want to do something beautiful for god this matters you know these are our highest values well you 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 just got back from world youth day you were in portugal and i've never been to spain 
have you seen some of the Islamic art and and some of the and any of the when the because that stuff has lasted for centuries too? Yeah, you know. Yeah, I remember in Spain they pointed out the blend of the was it the Byzantine and the Muslim influence. Yeah. It was something about the arches. One's pointed, sure. one's not. You yeah, know, yeah. and stuff. And uh, yeah, it was amazing how they did seemingly live together peaceably. But and, to your point, like, that's religion oh, influencing. Right, right. Yeah. Decades of, uh, yeah. of art, you know. Yeah. 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 In fact, uh, on social media recently, um, a Catholic pilgrim uh, leader posted a picture of the Divine Mercy Shrine that was opened up in 2000 in Krakow, right? Uh, for, you know, the Jubilee. And it's modern, and it probably was put up in five years, maybe, I bet mm -hmm. he had the most. Mm -hmm. And he was lamenting how this beautiful place of mercy he had said that i hope the architect is shown mercy you know <laughs> because it you know and then I, I i rarely comment but i happen to know this gentleman so because uh, don't forget comments are forever folks uh, yeah. and and one of our friars had the best line ever with comments on the uh -huh. internet that you should have to pay to comment yeah, yeah. Every, everyone's an armchair warrior you know or, or yeah. phone a thumb warrior yeah. you know, would you say that to the person if you were sitting next to them or in front of them. Right. But I said to the response, I said, well, listen, if you lived under communism for that long, you'd, uh, your architecture would suffer for a few years afterwards. <laughs> so show them mercy now. You know? It is reflected in the architecture over there. I, you know, I went to, I was over there in October and one of the EWTN, they have a studio over there and some people involved with that showed me around and one of them took me to Warsaw and I really didn't have a great interest in going to Warsaw. I still wanted to see more places related directly to John Paul II. But I was surprised. He would point out to me like the old Soviet era architecture. You know, you could see it bland and, you know, really unattractive kind of thing. But I was surprised uh, how European Warsaw did look, especially like the old section. But even like downtown, it was like a modern city, you know, with fancy yeah. high-rise, you know, skyscrapers sure. and stuff. But um, yeah, it. Uh, but yeah, the thing I was going to say though, I was struck one time. It was in Krakow for World Youth Day, and in the like one of the main event fields, they were having activity. It was close to the where John Paul II lived when he. He like moved to Krakow like when he was 18, 19, lived in a, I think the basement of like his, an aunt's house or something. And so they had this church that he would go to. They had two churches he would pray at a lot. I'm forgetting the name of one that was close to the aunt's house. But it was like built in the 20s maybe. And it was, it was you know, it was very much a modern church for that time. And it, it even, I mean, you could tell like the style of the 20s, but um, it just kind of struck me because they had like Carmelites, I think, were assigned there. And they actually had some Carmelite martyrs. I don't know if it was from the war, but they had some relics there and stuff. But I guess, you know, because John Paul II seemed, you know, he was so open to, he always, you know, he wanted the church to express itself, to be enculturated in the current culture as well, you know. And that, you know, he commissioned like masses and stuff by modern um Composers and things like even that. his uh, vestments sometimes too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He took so, heat for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think he wanted it, you know, to be living and real, and to uh, obviously, I think you know, you 
appreciate the beauty and stuff. But I, because I kind of wondered when I saw the church that he spent a lot of time in, I thought, wow, yeah, I could see how he experienced that concretely, you know, a, a, a new church of that time. Um, but I forgot how we got off into that. <laughs> yeah, let's go back. We got to go back to Garagou Lagrange. We just covered 2,000 years of Western civilization, all from uh, Old Leeds Road in Irondale, Alabama. Well, let me say one more thing. I, yeah, I, please. I, yeah. I read. This is great. Yeah. I read Miles. Thank you for the listeners staying with us. <laughs> you read, yeah. Uh, yeah, the Milestones, the autobiography is written in the late 70s by Ratzinger. And he talked about why he was Augustinian. And what he liked about it, I think he said it, seemed to preserve the mystery of these of the faith, you know, in a way. I mean, I, I love Thomas to go and you, somebody gets something solid you can learn and hand on to others. Um, but I thought that was, can, I, you can see that in Ratzinger's writings, you know, that he had this uh, beautiful way, it was almost like a phenomenology, I guess, that, uh, you know, just to explain like what's happening and like the experience of it, right? That was seemed very modern. Uh, but I know, like good Thomas, right? They take those principles and apply them. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I I would say, okay. So going back, if Aristotle and Thomas really look at creation and everything is through, there's an old term, uh, exitus and reditus. Basically, when you look at the Summa, picture this: the Big Bang, God outside of time and space, and Picture the Big Bang like throwing a boomerang into, you know, creation. Creation comes out and the that's the exitus, right? The overflowing of love. Mm-hmm. It just had to create the Trinity. And then that boomerang is going to make its way back to God, back to the Trinity, so they can catch it, if you will. Right. Yet, almost like a surfer on a wave, while that boomerang is out, the incarnation happens. You know, like right. picture all of a sudden like a cosmic surfer, you know, right. and this boomerang is thrown out. And all of a sudden Christ drops in the second person of the Trinity and becomes one of us. And then that completely changes the return to God. Mm-hmm. You know, God says, I'm going to drop into time and space. Right. And now it's different. And yeah. we're going to have a different boomerang catch back right. to the right. Alpha and Omega. So... We look at a lot through creation, mm-hmm. the created world, but then the created world has this now <laughs> cosmic surfer, uh, no, <laughs> this, uh, you know, reality of God and man coming together. And now creation has to be viewed completely through this union of, right. of God and man. Right. So to go back to your point about Pope Benedict, whereas Thomist will look a lot like at nature in the created world, through again Aristotle and and, and that look. But perhaps what maybe, and I know there's Dominicans who could speak better to this than I could, Mm -hmm. Father Mark, but perhaps um, what we would then view as, which is what Augustine gets at and Plato, grace, the role of grace. So all of a sudden grace is going to be because of the passion, death, and resurrection now. And I mean, Dominicans can... Father Garagou Lagrange, I remember my grace class, there's like 12 different kinds of graces, you know, not just the ones you say before dinner, you know, yeah, yeah. Prevenient grace, uh, singular grace, uh, habitual, uh, habitual grace, yeah, absolutely. Grace of final perseverance, yeah. you know, there's a sale on that today, you know, yeah. So uh, that it's a grace outside of a grace. And, 
So perhaps then for us, our view of grace on human nature, because that's a big thing too. If you were going to sum- summarize all of, Arist- all of Thomas, forget Aristotle for a moment. If you're going to summarize all of Thomas into like one brief sentence, uh, God's grace elevates human nature. It works on human nature and then it elevates mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if I were to sum up all yeah. of Thomas, I'd yeah. that said. God's grace working on our human nature. But if you've got like St. Augustine and, and, and Plato who are looking more at the transcendent, looking more at the mystery, uh, maybe perhaps we could look at it this way. Augustine would be the smoke rising from the thurible, and Thomas is more of the crushed flowers <laughs> that make the smoke, you know? <laughs> But it's all going to God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it seemed like, yeah, Augustine had a deep sense of, I want to say the depravity of man. That might be Oh, too no, strong. he did. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. Because yeah. um, I think I, part of it, too, is he's, he was he was at kind of an end of civilization in his time, right? The, yeah. the, the barbarian hordes were coming sure. in. And, was, and, and on the flip note, that's funny you say that, yeah. because thomas was renowned for his purity and innocence of life yeah so isn't it funny augustine was a worldly man uh-huh. who had a deep reversion right and thomas was protected in innocence and purity and holiness yeah. throughout his whole life yeah. even by special yeah. graces to go back to grace there for a minute two radically different beginnings yeah but both Great minds. You know, I think the parallels with John Paul II and, and Pope Benedict, to me, I see that in their life too. You see, like John Paul, you know, had this this great formation from his family, from his dad's witness. I think his dad's cause is even introduced. But he would, you know, wake up in the middle of the night and see his dad on his knees praying and stuff. And um, and you know, John Paul's more Thomistic, right? And, yeah. And I was thinking, I haven't heard anybody say this, but I, I wonder too, it's like, you know, Ratzinger is there in Germany, you know, pre-war. His dad was like very much anti-Nazi and like, I think paid some kind of cost for that and stuff. But, you know, so he saw in his country consumed by this horrible evil. You know, John Paul II in Poland, where they built a number of these concentration camps, now he's like suffering from because it. of that, yeah. Yeah, but it's like, and I, I know, like, I think Ratzinger was very much was Bavarian, you know, and they considered, you know, this stuff insanity. But um, but still, I would still think still to have that, I don't know. I just wonder how much that would, maybe I'm underplaying his intelligence, you know, obviously to see over that kind of yeah. stuff. But I would think to see your country be behind Nazism would mark you in a sense that you can see man's moral depravity, like what is possible, what kind of in- oh, yeah. evil we're capable of. Oh, right? a- absolutely. And then John Paul looking to see what kind of fortitude and, and mercy and resilience the Poles had yeah. on, the, on the total. One is the oppressor, one is the oppressed. Yeah. Yeah. And two great popes come out of that to yeah. lead the church. Oh, it's yeah. fascinating. I'm glad yeah. you said he was a Bavarian too. That's important to remember. <laughs> I only really realized, oh, I thought oh, all Germans are Lutheran. No, only half of Germany is Lutheran. You know, the other half is actually Catholic. And I had the privilege of going to Bavaria for the first time last year. It was it was great. And um, But no, that's a good point, Father Mark. Uh, to, to think about how they came from such different areas 
Um, yet God would call them both to the chair of Peter in succession yeah. of each other. And see, I think one thing Ratzinger just seems so gifted. I mean, they're both geniuses, but like Ratzinger, it seemed like he could just had this way of being able to sum up and identify the problem, the error. I, I mean, this is my view of it. I, I think like, you know, John Paul, the great moral theologian, that was his field of study and stuff that, you know, he could he could delineate, you know, I think that's where the Thomism helped him, right? With natural law and role of conscience Correct. and sin yeah. and everything. That he could say and apply these principles to like modern problems, you know, and say, you know, this is right, this is wrong. I mean, today it seemed like it's, you know, you hear errors that we, we th I thought we were past. Yeah. You know, proportionalism, consequentialism, sure. situational ethics, all this kind of yeah. I mean, John Paul was like, Veritas Splendor was like saying all this stuff. And there's a big anniversary coming up for Veritas Splendor too. Is there? Yeah. 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 And, and to think about it, yeah, JP too was the philosopher. They say, you know, Benedict was a theologian and, yeah. and Francis is like yeah. the pastor. And uh, I remember um, one of our friars, he was a great scripture scholar. Father Joseph Halabadi, he's still alive. He's out in our novitiate now, and he's maybe his mid-70s, later 70s. And fascinating story, uh, converted from Islam in Iraq to Catholicism, left to Switzerland, discerned a vocation, joined the Dominicans in Switzerland, right. trained in Rome, ended up teaching and becoming part of the Dominicans in the United States. And I remember after uh, talking about Benedict, we were at table, and I was a young student brother in yeah. Washington, and he goes, in his... Swiss Iraqi accent. He goes, for me, Benedict the Sixteenth, smartest pope of all time, <laughs> all time. And it is really true. I mean, that you know, not that you and I are sitting here as papal historians, but my goodness, that that man, rest his soul, had a mind, a mind. And I think his real gift was like just the scripture. Yeah. Well, hold on. Let me yeah. let me yeah. let me interrupt you. Yeah. So one thing the church has suffered from in the last maybe 120 years, 130, yeah, actually, and I'll, this also goes for Protestant scripture scholars too, not yeah. just uh, Catholic scripture scholars. But you know this, you and I had to study it, what was called the historical critical method. So what had happened in scripture scholar, because of major advancement in archaeological studies and ancient mm -hmm. cultures and languages, mm -hmm. which was all good, Father Mark, you know, all those things. But what it ended up doing, it influenced uh, scripture scholars so much. They were so uh, fixated on the historical setting. Mm -hmm. What did this mean in the culture? Mm -hmm. Well, did the writer use this and this language and this would have been here and this would have been in the role of women, whatever. I mean, go on and on about you know history. And, mm -hmm. and where it ended up sucking the soul, from my opinion, in, in a lot of my scripture yeah, classes, yeah. and I had wonderful professors, I want to right. make that clear. But I really felt like, you know, where's the soul of, uh, of, yeah. the, uh, of, of the scriptures? Yeah. And then I read the introduction. I was like my third year, one of my most difficult scripture classes. And I read the introduction of Pope Benedict uh, for his first volume of Jesus of Nazareth. And he actually very lovingly critiqued. He didn't throw it out, but he yeah. gave a serious critique of the risk or what has happened, right. what was happening with historical. Right. It's like he read my mind. Yeah, and yeah. and then from now on, I was like, oh my goodness, this guy knew, loved scripture. Yeah, yeah. And he would say, 
and milestones. I think he, he wrote about, like he was coming up being educated, the German historical critical. Correct. Method. Yeah, and he said at that time, it was at its best, he felt, I guess he'd go on to learn more discoveries and make it. But yeah, we should say you know, all meetings rooted in that literal sense. So it's yeah. vital. But yeah, something got lost with the inside of the spiritual sense of yeah. it. And you know, like, I don't know. There's just some controversies of some scholars and stuff, modern day scholars. But um, yeah, I think. But he knew it well. I mean, yeah, that, that yeah. He, knew the, he knew his peers of scripture scholar really, really well. Yeah. And he wanted to interlock with them in, in a very kind way, actually, even though he had some reservations about what they, yeah. how they were doing it. You know, and again, nothing heretical per se, but like, yeah. hey, let's not lose the essence. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me, I just feel like, you know, not being a scholar, but just, you know, we have like dogmas of our faith. It's like we don't have to. We don't have to question the virginal birth or conception. You know, it's like some of these scholars are like, yeah. and I, I could see the value of maybe seeing, you know, is this directly in the text? But it seemed like they were going beyond that, you know, and, and acting like this was like calling into question the dogmatic teaching yeah. of the virginal conception or birth. Sure. You know, it's like this is settled. You know, yeah. I, I, I'm. I want to know what the scriptures mean. Or, but or, or like the resurrection, I had even heard once, one one thing was from that scripture scholarship period, that the resurrection is something that happened. In their hearts. Yeah, in yeah. their hearts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. like an actual, it was, it was, you know, yeah. he was risen in their hearts so they didn't see him in the tomb. and yeah. yeah. But yet he was already, you know, with the Father. It's just crazy. Well, stuff. yeah, I mean, these guys go out and get martyred for the faith. Yeah. That resurrection was real. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, for you to be able to want to, to be willing to die for this, yeah. you know, this isn't just something in my heart. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll share something with you, and I, I want to be careful because the laity have contributed beautifully, and the role of the laity, the JP two encouraged the universal call to holiness. But you know, laity did not do scripture degrees or scripture scholarship up until maybe the last what 50, 60 years, seventy mm. years even a little bit before the council. Mm -hmm. And now you have lay men and women teaching in seminaries, scripture scholars that like knowing the languages, looking at the original texts and their, their translations and things. Yet I often used to say this, and I actually said this to the nuns on mm -hmm. the retreat. You know, when priests and saints like Thomas Aquinas and the like would, give, would write their books or their commentaries on scriptures, they always dedicated their books to Our Lady. Uh -huh. And now these lay folk uh -huh. usually dedicate their book, especially the men, to, to their wives, families. to yeah. their families. <laughs> yeah. And believe it or not, and, and this is held in tradition of the church, the fact that someone has been called a consecrated life or celibate life, it allows them to have a contemplation and a depth due to the actual way the life is lived. Right. Poverty, chastity, obedience, the counsels, right. the time for prayer, the time for contemplation, but the time for study right. to approach the scriptures on a much greater level. Yeah. So yeah. someone like Thomas Aquinas would be able to look at it much differently right. than let's say a layman of the 21st century who indeed genuinely orthodox uh, in an orthodox manner. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, oh, speaking about that, I've really, of course, like people like Scott Hahn and oh, it's fantastic, you know, and yeah. Brant Petrie. Yeah, I'm really. It seems like Brant Petrie is like really bringing in this wonderful, like the com the Jewish commentaries of the, how did the Jews hear these things? Yeah, and he's doing a just a beautiful yeah. way. I feel like that's his real contribution yeah. to make that real accessible. 
And in fact, isn't it funny where perhaps there is a lacking in the ordained and the consecrated life in good scripture scholarship? The Lord is raising up phenomenal lay lay people to fill what's lacking in his shepherds. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you wonder sometimes too with so few priests, it just seems like so many priests are, you know, they're out there in parish at work and preaching and confessional work and you know, maybe there are not as many being sent to do the high-level studies, you know. And, so. and you know, Father Mark, that's even happening in religious orders yeah, uh, yeah. who historically had sent men on for doctorates and, and licenses right, and things because right. they just don't have the, uh, Man the manpower, power, frankly. Yeah. Um, so it's very important. It's funny. You don't think about it. You think about the priest out there being with the people. Yes, that's important, parish yeah. life. But the mind of the church has to continue to stay sharp. And, yeah, and yeah. if I may, I mean, just getting to spend some time with you here in this last week, my visit down to the Annunciation Friary. Uh, you guys are fortunate. I feel there's a few brothers who are doing additional yeah. degrees, and, and that, yeah, that's so got, important. Yeah, one of our guys has a canon law degree, and one just got a license in evangelization. Mm-hmm. One's working on one of the Franciscan studies. and So, yeah. So that, yeah. that that's a gift. Yeah. But now, you know, the joke is that... Uh, Franciscan, uh, acad- I better be careful, I might not get invited back here. Franciscan <laughs> academic life peaked with Bonaventure, and it's never been the same. <laughs> That's it. Well, thank you, uh, Father John, for your time. And it's been nice. Uh, by the way, there's room over at the uh, monastery tonight. Yeah. Um, let's talk about your talks to the yeah, sisters. So to go okay. back, and that was a great digression. That was, that was well, that was guided by the spirit. No, but to go back, um, so... You know, the retreat has to come to the nuns. They, they, so traditionally, a friar will go and spend time with them, give them conferences. Uh-huh. Uh, one of the traditions is that they, they still have their normal schedule, yeah. but they would have a conference from the morning and a conference in the evening. So Father Garagou Lagrange, again, he was the uh, doctoral advisor, director to JP2 of his, his thesis in the 19th, 50s, I guess, after the war, obviously, before he was, you know, um, uh, Bishop Krakow. Uh, Father Garrigou gave these conferences. It's called, it was a book called The Last Writings of Garrigou Lagrange. I remember there was, we were going on a house retreat, the, the brothers in Washington, uh, the Dominican friars. And I had a book on the priesthood uh, in my hand by Garrigou Lagrange. And I'm not a big Garrigou Lagrange devotee, but he is part of our heritage. And I was, you know, being introduced to Aristotle and Thomism, and I, and I happened to like his style a little bit. I mean, he can get very deep and very thick. Don't get me wrong. like the three ages. That's right. Ages. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly what I was just thinking about. It's There's like three massive, massive <laughs> volumes. They're put out by Tan. And basically, if you bought them, you'd probably only be able to read them a little bit. And then you could use them just to, to stand up your laptop during your Zoom meetings. So the angle on the camera from your laptop screen is even with your head, not looking down or not looking at your nostrils going up. That's a little tip to the audience, by the way. Little trick. So when you're having a good Zoom, just and this is media fryer. So frame yourself in your laptop camera that you're not looking up your nostrils or they're not looking down on them. And you just have to use a stack of books. Just like bring your laptop up to about, you know, shoulder level. Uh, so, and of course, Tan puts that out, the, the Tan publishing, the three. Uh, but so he can be very deep and, and very, I don't want to say unapproachable, but I mean, really for advanced theology. So he was a great theologian just the last century. And this collection of writings, uh, I was on retreat and 
uh, I had a book on his on the priesthood, and one of the fellow friars said, no, 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 you've got to read his book on uh, the last writings. It's a retreat he gave to nuns, and it's really Dominican life, soup to nuts. Now, it mm-hmm. can also any kind of contemplative life. It right. could be Franciscan active. It could be men, women. It could be monastic like mm-hmm. poor Claire's. I mean, the conference is really... They start with God, they end with God, but everything, counsels, mortification, uh, the cross, devotion to Our Lady, humility, uh, fraternal charity, love of God. I mean, it's just so comprehensive. And they're collected in this book called The Last Writings, and it was very difficult to get. Uh, It had gone out of print. It was very hard to find, even on Amazon, or I mean, if you found a copy, it was $350. (laughs) The thing was to go to like Dominican libraries uh, Uh in our priories that no one touched in 10 years, find a copy, say, hey, can I borrow this? And then then take Uh it into your own library. Uh, uh, And uh, it got republished, uh, for those who might be interested, to know the love of God. And it was the last writings of Garigou Lagrange, To Know the Love of God, St. Joseph's Press, I think out of West Covina, mm-hmm. California. Dr. Scott Hahn actually gave the foreword to the book, the intro, oh. the re, the new reprinting mm-hmm. of it. It's not called The Last Writings anymore, but if you put in The Last Writings of Garigou Lagrange, it would probably show up on Amazon. It's available in paperback now. And one of our own friars, great theologian, who was the one who turned me on to it, he helped spearhead uh, because the publisher who had put it out in the 1970s or late 60s, they didn't own it anymore. They didn't have the copyright on it. His name is Father uh, Kajardin Cuddy. Mm-hmm. He's a great theologian in Washington. And so he he gave me this and said, read this during retreat. Mm-hmm. And as I read it many years ago, and we're going back over 10, 12 years, maybe 13 years ago now, it was so rich, it was so substantial that I said, if I was ever invited to give a retreat to nuns, uh, I would use this as the total template. And that's what we did. So we had 18 wow. conferences with the nuns here. Uh, it's 18 conferences in the book. And I just followed his lead and I would share reflections on the different aspects of our life and then some commentary on it. And of course, we'd blend in a little scripture. We'd blend in things from the history of that particular monastery and the like. Mm-hmm. But I'll, I'll give you a, um, a little sample for the audience. Uh, so in his writing on obedience, why religious would take obedience, like you and I, right, in our vow right. of obedience, he said that uh, about this, about the modern world uh, and how it would view uh, obedience. Now, we one of the things in, in, in the first commandment is really humanity should be obedient to God. We have to have obedience to God, right? We right. keep his commandments. Right. So he'll comment on this. So this is under the chapter of obedience, and he says this. Although the modern world may be described as rationalistic, now don't forget he's right in the 1960s, it disobeys reason rather than obey God. This pretended absolute independence pushes it into all types of slavery. And the worst type of tyranny, that of rebellious slavery, I'm sorry, excuse me, That of rebellious passions, right? Think passions and emotions, same word, uh, and or appetites that we have, right? The appetites humans can have, uh, both for the bad and good. So he says, and unjust laws passed without any recourse to conscience. Again, this is looking at modern times, the modern world, by disobeying God, what the result of it is. He's like a doctor diagnosing a patient when he looks at society. Such legislation is aimed at the self-interest of the party in power. 
against which there remains no possibility of vindication, since absolute and eternal justice is rejected, the rights of God repudiated. And I bet you under the hood here is communism. I wouldn't be surprised mm. to. It goes on to say this, general obedience to the commandments of God and his church is the sole efficacious remedy for this anarchy and tyranny. So if we obey God and his commandments, there won't be anarchy and tyranny, or it'll be well controlled. Man must understand that God, being his creator, has a sovereign right over him. He must understand that his intelligence and his will were created only to know, love, and serve God, and thus to obtain eternal life and supreme beatitude. So there's just a little snippet, Father Mark, yeah. on, on about modernism and, and obedience in the 1960s and looking at the culture. And again, this is this is pre-1968. I know that. So yeah, the, these social yeah. upheavals hadn't right, happened yet. Right. But he, he shares that in light of the baseline for Christians, where we have to be at. But he's also then going further on in the conference to talk about those who are called to the vow of obedience, like you and I have this vow of obedience, mm -hmm. that some of us God has called to a more intense way of living out uh, the life of the Christian. So all Christians have to obey God. All people have to obey mm -hmm. God. Even the natural law, you know, on our hearts kind of pushes us to obey God, whether the pagan realizes it or not. But you and I, God, thanks be to God, we've just been persevering in this life we've been called to obey at a deeper level. So you right. and I, versus the, the listener who may be a layman, layman you and I have... Uh, surrendered our will. Right. Now, it doesn't mean that, like, you know, you and I can't choose the kind of coffee, and you have a great selection here, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> that we feel like, well, do I want decaf? Do I want light roast? Do I want dark roast? <laughs> Secrets of the friary. Uh, but, um, but you and I have surrendered our will mm -hmm. uh, to a vow, to a superior. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think it's important to remember, too, it's like... Um, you know, it's not like we're giving up something evil. No. Right? We're, religion is called to give up something good, you know, to uh, hopefully to foster charity. As Vatican II talks about, the vows are there to, to foster charity and the soul and love of God and have this solid, this single devotion to him. But yeah, like lay and people. And to avoid paying taxes. No, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but yeah, the lay people are to live the spirit of the councils, you know, and... Uh, and you know in the world and to have detachment and things yeah. like that too and you know when you're saying that quote too i was thinking of this phrase i knew a priest who would say his mother used to tell him this guy was a doctorate in theology his mother she should probably have more wisdom than the doctorate. <laughs> yeah. no mothers of priests have wisdom they my mother comes out with these little blips like oh my gosh she was so right this isn't just like mom knows best this is more profound yeah. anyway go ahead i'm sorry father mark yeah, yeah well he said his mother used to tell him be good it's easier that way <laughs> <laughs> that is deep that is so true. Yeah. It's like we're our own worst enemies. Yeah. And sin is really the enemy. And uh, It is. And by doing the right thing, we grow in freedom, yeah. the blessing, we know peace and joy. Well, well, that's what he calls it. Obedience is freedom. And you know yeah. what? I think you've probably heard this described this way, or maybe some of the great programming you guys have been involved mm -hmm. with over the years now. When you keep the commandments, you're free. Mm. doesn't mean we might not break them once right, in a while. Right. Um but when you keep the commandments, you know, the question is, are you break, have you broken any commandments? No, the question is, are you keeping them? Yeah. And then there's, there's freedom in the right, commandments. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, because it, I think we're enslaved, right? If we be, you commit sin as a slave to sin. Correct. And so it, it makes this very kind of small, turned inward. Yeah. And the thing I notice too in people, and I see it myself as well, that at times, you know, it's like we just lose our joy and our peace. Yeah. You know, it's like the lights go off when we, you know, are sinning and things. And, uh, and don't forget, joy and peace, that's a fruit. Those are fruits. Yeah. They're supposed to just blossom. Right. Like the right. flower just shows yeah. up because you're rooted right. and you're on the vine. Right. Think of John right. 15, of course. Yeah. But yeah, so you're right. That, mm. that, that the, the joy is gone. Because you have you ever heard this said? Like, um, I've seen it kind of just in self-help, like nice little sayings, whether it's you know, Hallmark or something in the Cracker Barrel store, you know, at the beginning. Uh, I choose joy or choose, well, actually, you know, you can't choose joy. It just yeah. flowers off. It blossoms. You know, it's a, it's a fruit of the spirit. Joy. Yeah. It's not like, yeah. oh, there's joy on the shelf. I'm going to choose yeah. it. No, it comes out of this life. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, like Thomism and things has such a respect for reality and like, um, I don't know if you want to say accepting, acceptance of reality. You know, I think there's a good movement today and, you know, having mindfulness, like having this acceptance of reality, you know, yeah. living in the present moment, the Catholic version of that. And, uh, and somebody had, like for Christmas, they had given me this kind of like, I call it artisan. I don't know what you call it. It's some kind of rustic decor thing. It's a framed picture of the saying, enjoy the moment. And when I first saw it, I thought, oh, man, you know, I'm not going to do with this. You know, we're, supposed, we're supposed to be crucified every day, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, by the way, uh, just a little side note to the listeners. Uh, all religious have a, a drawer or a box. We can open up our own religious goods store because people do give us these beautiful, pious things. But, yeah. you know, after a while, it's like, uh, I have nowhere to put it. Oh, let me pass it on. <laughs> but it wound up really blessing me. I've got like a prominent place around Isn't my that desk. that funny? Yeah. Yeah, it's like be present. Yeah. You know, we find God in the present moment. Oh, absolutely. We find our joy, yeah. our peace in the present moment. And, uh, and two, you know, I, at one point, it's like I was, you know, I was just struggling with some things in my life and assignments and stuff. And, um, and I, sometimes I'd have this sense, it's like I'm not living my life here you know it's like yeah. sometimes you're just putting out fires or whatever and it's like um i you know i was even like i'm not enjoying my life right now and it's like it helped me just to kind of slow down and say you know be where your feet are at so to speak yeah. you know and then you can find god you can have some acceptance well do you realize too by you live, having that time of your religious mm -hmm. life you were actually being obedient you were fulfilling God's will mm -hmm. to the best of your ability through your superiors, even though it was like, I'm mm -hmm. not spreading the gospel. I'm making sure that the roof's not leaking. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in charge of the community or whatever. Or, you know, I've yeah. got to find out that, uh, you know, my, my, my friend's mother's in the hospital. I have to go. Yeah. So isn't that strange that yeah. you, you were actually, you would have been more conformed, or at that time you were conformed to God's will versus maybe if you were running away from that and doing side little projects. That look good on yeah, the outside. Exactly. That hey, was we showy, produced a new right? show. You know, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's fascinating. Yeah, think. and I think yeah. there's so much in our culture, it's like let's say you're not enough. You gotta be more, right? You okay. gotta strive more. Complete. And our generation yeah. you and I are both Gen yeah. Xers. Yeah. And as we hit the middle yeah. of our lives now, right. um, 
oh, that all through the 80s and 90s, yeah, and we were just yeah. fed that stuff and the yeah, whole yeah. careerism and, and yeah. you know, the 401k versus the pension and multiple companies. And, yeah. you know, so it's, it's and here we are in the middle of the road now where we're all getting a little grayer, a little older. <laughs> A little fatter. Well, when I think it's like it's on crack cocaine now with uh, like TikTok in comparison oh, of sure. social media. This was years ago. I remember visiting an old classmate from college and I looked at his Facebook or something and I thought, wow, man, what a great life. You know, I go to visit him. I was like, you know, he's divorced. He's had all these struggles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, you don't take a picture of your divorce no, certificate. No, exactly. <laughs> or, the, or the empty six-pack on a Tuesday night when you were supposed to go to bed. You know, yeah. No, we never see that side of social media. Right. So we're comparing ourselves, like, to the outsides of others, so to speak, you know. And it's like, so it just kind of puts you, like, in this tension. You know, I'm yeah. just not enough. Well, you know what's you know? hit me with the with the... What's really hit me, Father Mark, in the last couple of months... Social media and what it is and what it does, and it has its good points. Again, it's a tool. It's not evil in and of itself. But you know what's really hit me? when we? Because I've been on Facebook 15 years now. I've been on Instagram 10 years. I didn't use it for like the first four years. Uh, but what it is is, you know, we are choosing, all of us who subscribe, to participate in this arena in this circus in this I, I use the term circus not as like derogatory just as like there's a lot going on there's three rings mm -hmm. so for those who do subscribe to social media we choose to participate in it it's not necessary for life and again it is more of this constant the good side versus reality or an augmented reality if you will and uh, or only the best side of humanity versus well anyway I don't want to go too deep but and I really can't go too deep I just don't have I'm not I'm not that gifted but I've realized that we choose to participate in what it is mm -hmm. and how many times now have you maybe met a fellow religious mm -hmm. a lay person who comes to see you guys mm -hmm. here uh, I have a few friends like I'm done I'm off I'm mm -hmm. I'm, I'm I'm checking out <laughs> I, I don't need to have that apart. it's not necessary right right uh, yeah. now of course then there are ways and means where, I mean, great things about the gospel. I've seen the evangelical impact when I've used social media, you know, yeah. and, and of course you and I are different because we're public people of the Catholic Church. So a priest mm -hmm. always has to remember that. That's why father shouldn't put up a picture of his dinner that night, you know, <laughs> put up a picture of the Last Supper. They want to put up a picture of any kind of food, put up the Eucharist, okay? Don't put up the steak that a lovely lay person cooked for you on their backyard grill. I know it's nice you went to see the Smiths and they had you over and the kids like like joked around and made it play, and then the yeah. mother made her homemade strawberry shortcake. The dad made it steak. Yeah. Well, listen, put up a picture of the, the the only meal if you're going to evangelize the people. Of yeah, and and it yeah. is like you said, you know, it, it is this medium now we have to proclaim the gospel, yeah. and our young people are on TikTok, right? Especially right now, and so the church's presence want to be there, but yeah, it's got to be done. Well, think about this too. Mm -hmm. Let, if I may hit home mm -hmm. a little closer for you, Father Mark, if you know, Mother Angelica, I'm always blown away. You, I thought she was 51 when she started the network. Mm -hmm. You told me she was 58. Right. And that really, I, 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 I'm just, I know they say age isn't anything but a number. And, and, but I am fascinated that when most people in modern times, well, in modern times we're living longer. So that's first yeah. and foremost. Yeah. But the fact to do something, such an undertaking, of course, it, it was an undertaking for God. But 
you know, at the time, 1981, budding cable TV, there's 50, 60 channels, there's satellite dishes. She said, hey, I'm going to participate in this. Well, she had two hundred dollars in the bank. Yeah, she had a lot of security. She did. Yeah, 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 and and a lot of risk. Well, she was a foundress, you know. And that's one thing: foundresses and founders they do have a a little bit. They have graces to be that, but they also have a little autonomy, you know, to take more risks than you and I, you know. Well, you know, talking about the social media too, it's like I I follow like on Instagram. I'll follow some like one of those sites you know has like little clips of protestant preaching and stuff and and i i get a lot out of that i was just i was watching another one it looked like a pretty young uh, young he was pretty young as a priest that he he was talking about like the sending out of the 72 you know take nothing for the journey and and he he kind of imagined you know maybe they would have been tempted to say you know suppose they were given provisions and say, well, okay, Lord, what do we do when this runs out? Or what do we do when people don't like us, when they reject our our message? And um, and he say, put like Jesus say, okay, why don't we just why don't we just start with nothing then? And you don't have to worry about that. anything. If you start with nothing, you don't have to worry. Everything is gravy. Yeah. yeah, and it's like he said. You know, basically the message is. Cling to Jesus. He's going to be our providence, our yeah. support. He's going to strengthen us. He's going to guide us. He'll inspire us to what to say. And, and, and you know, if I may, that's what Francis and Dominic did yeah. radically. Yeah. Francis, you can speak to better than I can, but Dominic did something very, St. Dominic did something yeah. very interesting that he had just started the order. He had just gotten permission. He only had yeah. about 20 friars. Pope Honorius had given the permission. Yeah. In the first year, I think, of the order, maybe the second year at the most, he splits up. There's one house where they're all together, like 20 of them. He says, okay, two of you go to England, two of you go to France, two of you stay here, two of you go to Bologna. And they thought he was nuts. They were like, we just started. Imagine if Father Leonard came in all of a sudden, okay, two of you go to Houston, two of you go to New York, and two of you stay here, because you, you, you guys are about 15, 20. Yeah. And you'd be like, what, what do you mean? Yeah. By the way, for the listeners, Father Leonard is the community servant right, here. As right. we and the superior. Yeah. And uh, my goodness, it'd be like, wait, 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 wait a second. Yeah. And, um, but then he did that and relying on God's providence, like the 72. Yeah. Um, within about a year or two after doing that, the places where he sent the brothers, or maybe it was five or six places, yeah. all of a sudden they had like a dozen guys in each yeah. place. So, and yeah. then and were continuing to grow. Yeah. yeah. I think that's so attractive to people. They see authenticity and people yeah. generously living it and things. And that's, that's the tension, I think, as you get older, you know, <laughs> to cling to the structures. Sure. And well, that, I'll, you know. I'll share this with you. Yeah. You and I, here we are again, we're the same generation. The Friary of the Annunciation, you guys have been here now for almost 25, 30 mm-hmm. years in this Friary. Mm-hmm. My province is well-established. It's over 200 years old. We have places where we've been in the U.S. for 100, 150 years now, 100 and 200 years mm-hmm. we've been in Kentucky. So we're very established, and you talk about clinginess, too. And one of the first questions you asked me, Father Mark, when we started talking about my work with the nuns, the Dominican nuns in the monastery, what I was extremely edified by this week, being with the nuns, and... Um, reminding myself and our life as mendicants and friars, 
the reliance on divine providence. And, and really, yes, there is a well-established, generous, loving uh, benefactors of EWTN, lovely, generous benefactors of people who love what the Dominicans are doing for the American Catholic Church right now. But the nuns, you know, out of nowhere, the doorbell rang this week of their parlor, the front of the monastery, and some local parish had um, done a food drive, unbeknownst to the nuns. And all of a sudden, mm -hmm. like six massive cardboard boxes with canned goods and cereals mm -hmm. and cleaning products and all these things, I helped carry it in. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was like, oh my goodness, like just, yeah. just such a, because they can't go out. And yes, a monastery is allowed to have certain resources and, you know, yeah. to manage their economics, yeah. so to speak. But it just reminded me of here they are in the middle of rural Alabama yeah. behind grills and relying on that. And yet I'm concerned about my check-in tomorrow, you know, <laughs> uh, and uh, is my seat there that I, that I chose on Delta a month ago. You know? I know, it is a powerful, it, it, people can't picture this, but it, it, you know, they are, like you said, rural. And as I'm sure back in the day in the 40s, it was like dirt. I try to imagine sometimes that place in the 40s. It's north of Montgomery yep. in the country and so fragile. Now they had, I think they originally came down with some, was it Vincentian priest? Um, oh, no, they were, um, there was missionary priests right next door, not Holy yeah. Ghost Fathers, but yes, there were the yeah, religious yeah, priests right yeah. next to them. Maybe there were yeah. Vincentians, yeah. So I guess they had a little bit, you know, help there and stuff, but, um, a lot of help there, yeah. but... Um, Nonetheless, yeah. still risky, nonetheless. Yeah, you know. especially, like, yeah, the anti-Catholic South. Of course. I mean, and they were isolated. integrating. Yeah. Don't forget at that time. Yeah. You know, they were going to put black and white vocations together for the right. first time in the American Catholic yeah. Church. I mean, I feel that, like, for our sisters, too, it's like the vulnerability. It's like one thing, like, we're priests. And like Father Joe, Joseph Fessio would say, as a priest, you know, you can always get dinner somewhere. You know, like <laughs> some, some <family. laughs> One of our, our local Irish priests, he's foreign-born Irish, he said, I was staying at his parish. I was preaching the masses one week, and he invited us in to preach about the Eucharist. And, uh, and he didn't provide dinner for me. And so, I mean, I went out and grabbed something, sure. you know. And his associate was saying, well, you didn't do anything for Father Mark here. He said, I... Uh, you know, I've seen a priest die of many things. Starvation is not one of them. <laughs> but, oh, but anyway, funny. yeah, I mean, the, the sisters, you know, they're not priests, right? No. So, yeah, they are more much more radically dependent on, um, you know, because they're not performing, quote unquote, this measurable work, you know. And, 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 and the other thing, too, is I, I, I'll only speak to the Dominican tradition. The, there's more aura, meaning meaning prayer versus labora. Uh -huh. So some monasteries have like made altar breads for local yeah, priests right, in the past. Right. But for the most part, it's just their in-house work. Right. You know, again, they're not all sitting right. around all day, but it's just their basic living yeah. necessities, caring for older sisters yeah. and the like, older nuns, and prayer. So yeah. it's not like they've got like, because the men monastic life, we're brewing beer, we're making <laughs> caskets, we're binding books, we're <laughs> baking bread and making farming, jam, farming, yeah, we're running yeah. schools and yeah, places. Yeah. But you're right, the women, there is more of a fragility and more of a reliance on their divine spouse, you know, their mystical spouse. And, and there's a special inspiration I think they provide for the church. You know, and I, I try to preach more about this, you know, and this clamoring for women, priesthood, you know, modernity completely does not understand why can't women be priests and legitimately i think catholic women will say well what's what's our role maybe a young catholic woman sure. will say that and i i see it like they're they're 
they're called to image the church as bride. Yeah. You know, this fundamental discipleship that we're all called to, to give that fiat that Mary gave at yeah. the Annunciation. You know, women, and as John Paul II, you know, they, they model like the loftiest virgin, uh, virtues of the human heart. You Do know, you know also Aquinas believes women, because they can be mothers, are more attuned to nature. They are more attuned to the created world right. because of the potentiality to bear children right. and carry life, gestate yeah. life. Right. So they're operating on a plane that men can never operate on, you yeah. know, in their right. in their authenticity, in their nature. Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely, Father Mark. And also, too, just on a quick side note, I remember in our studies, our priesthood class on the holy orders, we had a great... The modern perspective, too, is... The priesthood and and the call for the ordination of women or married, not as much married priests, but um, it views it as a power. And actually, you and I both know if you view the priesthood as power, you're in big trouble. It's service. You know, you, everyone will be laughing at you if you view it as power. So, so it's actually a, a false notion of what the priesthood is. It's not yeah. about power. You right. Know? Yeah. right. There's an authority given to the yeah. priesthood by yeah. God, but. Right. Not power. Yeah. And I, I was, yeah, I think too, it's like lay people are, you can just feel it, sense it. I've experienced it myself. You know, it's like you just get this inspiration being around sisters. I think because of that humility of, you know, of their lives, you know, maybe they're teaching orders or something or serving the poor or something. They're, you know, it's just, it's much easier for the pastor or the priest to be proud about things, I think, than the sisters. And I know, to me, I just see it. I mean, it's like, now we got a group of sisters in Phoenix, you know, and they'll, they're like, they're like the, at the end of six miles of a gravel road. Um, and they're not far from the interstate, but it takes, I don't know, it was like 20 minutes to get to that, or 30 minutes to get to that interstate. But it, um, you know, people come out there to help them. Yeah. They, they they drive through all this dust, possibly get flat tires, snakes all over the place. You know, they go yeah. out there, and they they just there's a draw to them. Oh yeah. And when you think about it, it's like, man, what is going on here that they would be moved? You know, to help them. Yeah, to help. No, them. and I saw that. I've seen, I know exactly mm -hmm. what you're talking about. And for any listeners, um, laity, it is a real phenomenon. God will draw the laity to these monasteries to support. Right. And it's really beautiful. It is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, everything from maintenance to food donations to repairs. And then in turn, you'll meet these lay people and they'll say, you know, I, I, my prayer life increased ever since I started coming and helping the nuns. And yeah. My, yeah. Uh, I had a problem with my marriage and we rectified it. And so they, they get all this spiritual. Uh, and like the priests, we met priests out in Phoenix that were, they would tell you how their priesthood was renewed in their association with them. Yeah. So this is funny. Um, Otherwise, you see the importance of nuns yeah. for the church. Yeah. Uh, Pope John Paul II said in his book, to, his collection of letters, Rise Up, Let Us Be on Our Way to Brother Bishops, mm -hmm. he said that um, every diocese has to have, and it has to be a priority for the bishop, a group of contemplative monastic female nuns, mm -hmm. because they will be the, the supernatural 
powerhouse, the nuclear reactor almost of the diocese's yeah. prayer life. Right. So if uh, a bishop doesn't have one, you better establish one. Right. And you know what? I, I will share this. Who knows? This might hit someone listening through the work of the media and the grace of the Holy Spirit, Father Mark. And I don't know, maybe sometimes you hear this with your own nuns up in Hansville, you know, mothers, poor Claire's, uh, her community, your community. Um, it's not that well known in the church. I mean, there's still a great need to have vocations to this life. Uh, and that, uh, that young woman can consider it, and it's an aspect to enter into the cloister. But these nuns don't necessarily, even though they might be online or they're on media, they don't have the ability that we who are outside the cloister wall to tell young women about this life, women in their yeah. 20s and 30s. So it's important to promote it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think it's so unbelievably antithetical to cultural values of the day. Oh, completely. You know, it's hard. I would imagine, I, yeah. I've been told it, it's hard to get vocations because yeah. it's, you know, because I, I think about it too, you know, yeah, living off donations or people bringing food and most of the time we want to, especially myself, you know, I want to say what kind of food I get. Right? Sure. Yeah, right. <laughs> I like this and not that. And they're, they're, they're Canned tuna again. <laughs> so what, what is the, the spirit of Dominicanism or spirit of St. Dominic? St. Dominic, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I, I would say this. I mean, we're so close uh, to the Franciscans. That's why... I mean, again, uh, thank you for the hospitality, but I've all, the Franciscans were the first religious order I ever met as a kid. Capuchins coming out to my parish mm -hmm. from New York. And I love the, the New York province? Uh, yes, oh. they were. Uh, they were from uh, St. John the Baptist next to Madison Square Garden. They would wow. come out. And there was a great, God bless him, rest his soul, Father Bill Hayes, I remember his name. First religious I ever met. I can see him now. I probably served a few of his masses. He uh, died in 1988 or in 89. I remember even going to his funeral in New York City with the Capuchins. And he was a World War II chaplain and actually has a, just a quick side note, uh, and I'll, I will get to your question. He went to go visit Padre Pio after the war. And many GIs and soldiers did, and many priests mm -hmm. did, Americans. And he gets down to the train station and uh, I can never say it, Petrolicina, help me mm -hmm. out here. Uh, Petrochina. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Padre Pio's town, yeah. and uh, he um, there's a friar, Franciscan friar, waiting for him. He goes, uh, "Are you Father Bill Hayes?" He goes, "Yes," yeah. and he goes, "Oh yes, Padre Pio's expecting you. Yeah, come right, with me." Right. Yeah, again, the mystical gifts of Padre yeah. Pio. But um, so to answer your question, I I believe that the religious orders, the mendicants, uh, there's a certain warmth and a happiness that we have. Yeah that is is available to the friar who avails himself to it, you know, yeah, by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. The friar, listen, I mean, there are plenty of curmudgeons <laughs> in religious life. Don't get me wrong. I've, I've lived with some of them. That's their souls, you know. And I'm like, 80 years of living this life and you're complaining about the peanut butter still? You know, yeah. crunchy versus smooth, you know. No, rest their souls. These guys had probably levels of arthritis that I only, you know, will yeah. await me in 20, 30 years, maybe 10 years. So I have no clue what was going on under the hood. You got to yeah. leave them to God. But nonetheless, um, I would say for Dominicans, uh, St. Dominic was on the move, right? Like Francis. Uh, he was happy. It was always said that he loved all, was loved by all. Um, he was self-sacrificing in his love for the truth of the Gospels. So Dominicans and, and our charism 
We have to preach. We have to be out there. Um, we have to be brave and orthodox. He wanted the friars to be orthodox and be of good sound mind because he saw how much uh, poor training there was amongst a lot of the, the local clergy. You yeah. know? He wanted us to fight, um, but not perhaps the way we might think in the culture wars. He kind of wanted us to win everybody over with kindness, which I think it's been said sometimes about Dominicans, we're not conservative enough for the conservatives and we're not liberal enough for the liberal. Mm. And then the thing is, oh, we're medio ecclesia. We're in the midst of the church, you know, mm. in Latin. Uh, and... I would say that Dominicans, so Dominicans, look at the word made flesh, great Marian devotion, critical, absolutely critical, especially the rosary. You know, you wear a rosary, which I, th I think it's kind of neat that the Franciscan orders uh, do wear a rosary. You see many of the Franciscan communities wearing rosaries now. And because you always had the three knots mm -hmm. as your tradition, right? Poverty, chastity, obedience, mm -hmm. I guess, mm -hmm. the councils. And we've always worn the rosary. The tradition is that St. Dominic was given the rosary by Our Lady. So I, I see also the Dominican life is, is devotional, uh, devotional to the Lord through Our Lady. And it's also happy uh, and, and, it's, and it's on the move. Um, so I, I think, and of course, study. The last thing, let me, I can't forget that. So this is very important. Two last important things for Dominic and how we view ourselves is Dominic wanted the men to study. So instead of us doing labora like Benedictines, again, brewing beer, making jam, he's like, your work will be study, studying theology and philosophy that you can argue and, and, and talk about the times in which right, you live and, right. and show the truth. So that was big for Dominic, study. You got to study, study, study. And keep that going throughout your old Dominican life, not just your early formation. And the other thing is uh, then being the order of preachers. We were given permission by Pope Honorius to preach publicly. Back then, only the bishop could go into a town square in medieval Europe, Catholic medieval Europe, mm -hmm. and start preaching. Mm -hmm. um, so we were given a special permission to be mobile preachers. Mm -hmm. And so that's the other thing, too, to always be out there and be preaching. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Isn't there a phrase to like the motto, the hand on the fruits? Of your oh, yeah. So, yeah. okay. There's two things. Yes. So to contemplate and then to share the fruits of your contemplation with others. Mm -hmm. So they're also, St. Dominic, we have to have a contemplative side, a monastic side. We're not monks. I mean, again, friars or people often, when they see us in our habits, you and your habit, my, hey, are you guys monks? Have you right, ever gotten right, that? Right, yeah. Right. Um, and you'll say quite often, well, kind of like urban monks, you know, friars yeah. are usually in cities. I'm like, so we live like monks, but we move. We're not right. in the country, we're not in the monastery. But there has to be a contemplative element, a monastic yeah. element to, yeah. to our life as friars. And that's why we're uniquely hybrid, you know, uh, if you will, electric and gas. And then, yeah, so you contemplate things and then preach and share those contemplations. And also the motto uh, of the order is, let's see if I can get the, re the Latin right. Predicare, benedicere, phrase of I'll give you the English. It'll be yeah. faster and easier. Uh, I got a C in Latin. C is for Christian. <laughs> uh, no. So uh, um, to praise, to bless, and to preach. Uh, and that's, that's the Dominicans should always be praising, always blessing, yeah. always preaching. Yeah. yeah. I guess the shift of the. Laudare. That's it. Laudare. The praise. Laudare. Praise. Yeah. 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 Was it these, yeah, through the approval of the Pope at the time of Norris, that the mendicant orders, they would 
you know, live off the donations, you know, begging right. for their needs. Do you know, and, actually, there was a pope who came along like a century or two later and told us all to stop begging, <laughs> like the Dominicans and Franciscans, uh, really? because we, we were spending so much of our time begging right. that we weren't doing the apostolate. They're right. actually, they, we have to look into that. One pope came along, maybe it was a couple centuries after we uh-huh. were found, and you, you guys too. Yeah. He said to the Dominican orders, okay, enough, <laughs> get to work, stop begging all day, you know? Yeah. yeah. So they wouldn't, yeah, the... Yeah, friar versus a monk. You know, monk would be like in the big monasteries and rural, rural, yeah, yeah. and cities sometimes, right? Well, Europe that's the, that's the around, thing, though. Yeah. Cities then gathered yeah. around the yeah. monks. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and important preservers of culture. Oh, completely. And, yeah, yeah, the development of Western civilization. So, oh, uh, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it, today, you know, it does feel like you know we're in a time of this emphasis just on evangelization, and so it seems like. Dominicans and Franciscans are are as part of their charism, right? To, to be with the people, to evangelize, and and get out there and to do it, you know, kind of thing. And I think I think friars are well suited right now. And I'm not just saying that because you're a friar and I'm a friar, uh, but I think we're well suited to help with reevangelization mm-hmm. in America and the West and in our mobility. Yeah. Um, and I love it, like yeah. parish priests or. So yeah, come give us a retreat or yeah. come preach in the parish. And you know, it's you do feel like uh the two charisms working together, the Dawson priesthood and religious orders, you know, that they um you know, there's that joke, right? The lights go out in the church or the rectory and the and the uh Dominicans give this tome on the greatness of light and this oh. gift. <laughs> what does the Franciscans start to pray that they come back on? And the, the interior or the beauty of light of <laughs> yeah. God's love or something? Or, or yeah, just pray that God will fix oh, it. Yeah, and, sure, sure. and then the parish priest goes to the basement and replaces the fuse, you know? <laughs> 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 oh, yeah. Or the old joke is like, yeah, you take the vow of poverty, the parish priest says, I live it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, actually, though, one small thing, which is very interesting, and this is where you guys are very unique. I'm maybe a little, I have holy jealousy, if you will. Mm-hmm. When the American church was founded the, after the Council of Baltimore, the bishops at the time needed religious orders to be diocesan, to be parish mm-hmm. priests. So we still have a significant portion of our apostolate, and this is from many other branches of the Franciscans, also Dominicans, even a few scattered Benedictine parishes right. uh, where we um, serve almost like a diocesan priest. Now, granted, you bring your charism to the parish, so that's not lost. Yeah. It's not like all of a sudden you, you, you've checked your, your charism at the door. But I, I do see the wisdom in the standalone charism as it was in Europe or even parts of South America were then, okay, there were these local parishes with your local priest, but the Franciscan church was right here. And and so so I do hope to see, in the, and of course we serve where the bishops need us. You go where you're asked. You're, we have to be obedient to the local bishop. But I think it's neat for yourselves where you're, you're autonomous. Yes, you guys help with parishes all the time. Mm-hmm. You go out to local parishes, but, and you, but as you mentioned, Father Mark, you provide your charism 
to these diocesan outlets to help strengthen mm -hmm. the faithful. Mm -hmm. And you do it out of a standalone community. There's no, granted, there is a, a media apostolate attached to this community, but there's no parish here. Right. right. And so you're not worried about records too right, much and right, marriage right. prep. And even though you may do these things from time yeah. to time, uh, but there's something about being the special forces of the yeah, church. And, yeah. and I hope we do get to dive into that more or, or, or embrace that more as the American parish system is a little more stable, if you will, even if parishes are shrinking or closing. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. What were some of the other gems? Like, sure. Um, guns you... I think, so he, we, we talked about obedience. Let's, uh, let's look here about zeal. So this would be zeal for souls, um, having zeal for sinners. Uh, now, here's what's interesting. He attaches, so what's zeal? Zeal is great enthusiasm, right? And I'll give you a, a little selection from, first he says, the zeal for the glory of God and the zeal for the salvation of souls. And again, he's preaching to monastic women. We have to remember that and how they're zealous for God and praying for the whole world. Don't forget this too, in monastic life, in female monastic life, but also male monastic life, but a special way I think female monastic life, as we commented on that a few minutes ago, they're given a singular privilege. I mean, you, well, you know this, Father Mark. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, Mother Angelica had this even with her media apostolate. Uh, they're given a special privilege to pray for the whole world, you know, mm -hmm. in their cloister. You know, yes, we pray for the world, but they yeah. get to do it in a different level, frankly. Yeah. You know? yeah. So he says this. Um, some, okay, so here's a little thing from Zeal. Uh, he says that uh, in addition to prayer, the zeal of St. Dominic added penance for those who do no penance and mortification for those who do not mortify themselves. The perfect in their imitation of Christ are to redeem souls with their blood. So this is like an intensity of religious life he's talking about here. And we talked, and you and I were talking about the intensity of these nuns' lives. And, and, and you and I, I'm worried about my airline seat. And as you said, uh, I've never seen the, you know, Father Fessio saying, I've never seen a priest starve to death. You know, the priest always has a meal. But here's these brides of Christ waiting for the bell to ring and have food almost, yeah. you know. And they're not living in squalor. We right. want to make that clear. Right. But he says here, the perfect in imitation of Christ are to redeem souls with their blood. So as St. Teresa writes, the religious who comes into the convent solely to expiate her sins, because that is a tradition, the path of your own salvation entering into religious life. I don't understand what on earth she is doing. I think it's Teresa of Avila he's talking about here. He says this, in sanctifying ourselves, we are to sanctify our brethren too. A great means of sanctification together with prayer is the cross. When we crucify our body, our Lord can spare some poor sick body, sick perhaps through its own fault and with little strength left, or the body of a poor man who needs his health to earn bread for his children. When we immolate our heart to God, our Lord can cure a sick heart that lacks strength to break its chains. So he says, when we immolate our will to God, our Lord raises up a dead will. These are the two great means of exercising our zeal for the salvation of others, prayer and penance. Mm. So these women who are penitential, um, part of the Dominican um, constitutions in these monasteries, they're not supposed to eat outside of the appropriate times. Mm -hmm. And of course, then what do they do with the priest quarters? They fill it full of snacks. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, sister. Now, granted, we don't live under that, you know. Um, but 
that's pretty penitential in our day and age yeah, when snacks is. are so yeah. copious yeah. And, yeah. and and readily available. Right. And and of course we think they're absolutely necessary. <laughs> Eat five small meals a day. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, doctor. Okay, you got it. Does a package of Oreos count as a small meal at three o'clock? Um, so, but prayer and penance, because even though they can't see it, uh, they're they're affecting people halfway across the world. You know, like yeah. Father Garrigou just talked about. Now, I'll share something interesting with you. I don't know. Have you ever heard this from your your own poor Claire's? You know, the the nuns up at the shrine in Hansville, where people will call in with prayer requests. Mm-hmm. And, oh, can you pray for my husband who's out of work, my brother's with cancer? And a lot of times they never hear about what happened. Right. Have you heard yeah, this? Like yeah. they just never hear. Because right. the nuns do delight in yeah, finding out. Right. Yeah. Uh, whether it's something like, you know what, uh, sisters, thank you for praying for my brother. He made it to my father's funeral. Yeah. We actually, were, yeah. it was peaceful, even if yeah. it's a sorrowful time. Or, hey, I got the job. Thank you so much. My husband or my husband got the job, you know, or my mother, her cancer's gone, you know, so thank you. So I thought about, well, then those people who've asked for the prayer requests, are they like, who call back, are they like the one leper who goes back to Christ and actually says thank you? But then on the other flip of the coin, I said this to the nuns this week, but hold on, wait a second. If you did find out about the results of every prayer request that came through the monastery, you all of a sudden could get pretty puffed up. You know, it could be be a temptation, excuse me. Let me clarify that. It could be like, wow. People are getting jobs. People are getting healed. People are uh, coming back to the faith. People are making peace in their families. So if they knew how everything was being answered through their prayer and penance and living behind that grill, that could actually be a real hindrance. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they they just called to live a life of faith. You know, they don't... I've often thought about that. Yeah, they don't see the... You go to the parish, maybe you preach, and somebody says, great, I enjoyed it or something, or thank you for hearing my confession. It's like, I mean... You know, I I got ordained like at the beginning of the church scandals and everything, and and there was a certain amount of fear of like rejection and stuff, and what's going to happen. You know, I I've been so encouraged and supported yeah. my priesthood. Yeah. You know, it's like people are just like <clears throat> they they love you to death. You know, <laughs> they encourage you, they pray for also, you. Also, too, if I may say, imagine <clears throat> at that time, two thousand two, two thousand three, two thousand four. Imagine wearing the Roman collar. You and I are in habits. You yeah, know, we're right, kind of unique, right, and right. and we're kind of like, oh, what are those guys? Yeah, you know, monks yeah, or yeah. I think one time one of our friars, uh, uh, someone said, are they nuns? Like, and the father of the child said, well, yeah, they're man nuns. <laughs> so, but, but I say that so you're right. Here you experienced uh, encouragement, thanks yeah. be to God. But imagine, yeah, the, maybe yeah. some of the discouragement because of the Roman collar. Yeah, yeah one of the. Uh, one of the church documents on contemplative life, religious contemplatives, Galatian life, that they talked about like this mysterious fruitfulness to their life, you know. And I, I kind of felt like with Mother Angelica, it's almost like you okay, you get the cross section of her life that she has this incredible fruitfulness through EWTN and this evangelization and all that. And but just in general, you think about these hidden lives, you know, what kind of Fruitfulness is God drawing from their, you know, their their great faith. I was going to say, you know, maybe even greater faith in the sense that it's not recognized. It's not, you know, they just live these quiet lives. It's not palpable, right? Yeah, I mean, right. to the way media can be, or yeah. a network, or yeah. three hundred employees, and right, you know, right. You know. Right. no, that's true, and uh, known to God alone. Um, one other fascinating thing, maybe I could share mm-hmm. with with the listeners in our time together. 
really struck me. So there's two kinds of crosses he talks about. And uh, I, I can paraphrase pretty well, so I won't do a dive into the actual text. But he talks about the crosses that are um, active, that are kind of put upon us, right? So um, having a difficult relationship with a superior. Well, he talks about the crosses and purification, right? Having a difficult superior, maybe it's the cross of poor health, maybe it's the cross of uh, losing an apostolate or closing something. So he talks about all different kind of like physical and relationship crosses. But then he also talks about the purification. And this is strange because he says few have it, but it's a real sign of great intimacy with God. The purification of your faith, hope, and love. So trials against faith, trials against charity, trials against hope. And actually, um, I can share this uh, about a friar. Uh, this isn't anything betraying uh, a, a confidence. And I've only come to see it, Father Mark, in a new light now. He was in his late 80s. Uh, I was a student brother. He had served faithfully as a hospital chaplain most of his Dominican life in New York City. He had come down to Washington because he was with our senior community, you know, had a little assisted living kinds of things. Lovely guy, Father Thad Murphy was his name, rest his soul. His nickname was Bad News Murphy because it was always like, how you doing? Oh, my my arm's aching me. It was always bad news. <laughs> or did you hear this? Or, you know, so I was joking. He had a nickname. It's just part of his idiosyncrasies, you know, but Bad uh -huh. News Murphy. So he was in a hospital in Washington, D.C. Myself and a brother went to go see him, and he was just about to go to a nursing home. We do use nursing homes for some of our really invalid brothers who can't, who need that high level of care. And, and he... Um, and it, it was a, a nursing home run by religious sisters. It was actually out in Ohio, so we had to do an ambulance, like a, like a medical transport he had to do. And we went to go say goodbye to him in Washington. And he said, uh, pray for my faith. And I thought, well, that's kind of odd. You think you'd pray for like, hey, pray for my pain and suffering or mm -hmm. pray for my just a safe journey. But he said, pray for my faith. Faith is a virtue. Faith is a gift from God, right? Mm -hmm given to us a baptism, to believe what's been revealed. And I, I kind of thought about it. Why, uh, why is he asking me to pray for his faith? And then now, like 10 years later, <laughs> oh my gosh, forget the bodily pains. That was nothing. If this guy's got a dark night of the soul after right. all these years in his yeah. late 80s, yeah. and he's being tested to doubt, everything yeah and his holy cow but you know what for those who are close to god that's a purification that gary yeah. talks about i think i i want to be prudent in my commentary but in the time that i got to spend with the nuns at the monastery and one or two of the elderly nuns mm -hmm. asked to speak with me that's a real thing yeah. i mean this 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 purification yeah. of their faith their right. hope and their charity well you know remember we just learned there was that book that came out the letters of saint Teresa. Yeah. Like for 30 years, she's walking around with emptiness. Yeah. So, it, Mother Teresa? Yeah, Mother yeah, Teresa, yeah, St. Yeah, Teresa of yeah. Calcutta, you know. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, you know, like with St. Therese and things, it's like a sharing in his abandonment. She had like this redemptive suffering sharing of the darkness of his, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because I, I feel like at the time when that book about Mother Teresa came out, it was like, 
And people were saying, oh, yeah, you see, Mother Teresa struggled with faith like we all do or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, to compare what she was going through with some guy that's checked out of church and not yeah, exactly. say, like, like, I'm going fishing, you know, <laughs> literally. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Does God really exist? I mean, we're talking yeah. about this woman that entered into this, this darkness of abandonment that Christ himself suffered on the cross. At this point, who probably also had a couple of thousand women working with her all around the globe. Yeah, yeah. You know, having yeah. every level, dare I say, of, of uh, Catholic fame. Mm-hmm. Allow me to use that. I mean, yeah. she wasn't looking to become famous. You know? yeah. 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 Heads of yeah, state. Well, yeah. You know, it's hit me that it's from Mark's gospel that, you know, the the apostles couldn't drive out the, the demon from this guy's son, and he, he brings him to Jesus, and... And he said, Lord, if you can help me, help me. And Jesus said, if, you know, it's, all things are possible, those who have faith. And he said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Yeah. It's so, I actually saw this like on a, it was a 1970s priest ordination card, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and it, it just, I, don't know, I was reading it recently, like within the last year. It was like, that is so powerful. Yeah. Because there's like, yeah, there's this propositional faith. I believe these things about God. And when I got here, your mother Angelica was, I just, on the show, she was always talking about faith and faith. I'm like sitting there as a postulant thinking, I believe in Jesus. What are you here? <laughs> I, I checked in already. Yeah. Where are the habits? Yeah. Right. That's another thing. Yeah, without consolation or with this sort of sacrifice involved and there's, you got to die to yourself kind of faith. You know, you cling to God in darkness and you don't see where it's going or yeah. what's going to happen and that kind of thing. Trust. Trust. No, totally. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, And Faustina talks a lot about that. You know, of course, it says, Jesus, I trust in you. But I was also reading a few passages from St. Faustina's diary to them. Um, Our Lord saying it and about trust. Yeah, absolutely. But the other thing, too, is there was a great line about this monastic life. So in religious life, there's a thing called the novice year, or it might be two or three years, depending upon where you are. You're a novice. You're new. You know, we hear the term novice. I'm a novice in playing, you know, uh, tennis or whatever. <laughs> and uh, so we have our novitiate. And Garrigou in the book, in the writing, the collection, he says, the cloistered life of a nun, it's the novitiate of heaven. Mm-hmm. So the whole life is this mm-hmm. beginning, beginning newness um, to be purified here. And the interesting thing, too, is if those of us who are called to live in evangelical councils, you and I kind of in the world and out of the world, the nuns out of the world completely, uh, in monastic life, we're trying to, by God's grace, again, we were invited to do this. Think of Matthew 19. This is not given to everyone, everyone but those who it is, uh, they should ought to listen when Jesus says that about, you know, renunciating marriage really is what it is. Um, uh, that we're living out of the world. Oh, because here's what he was getting at for the nuns. He said that they're trying to do God's will perfectly, right? And if they try through this intense monastic life to do God's will perfectly, then their purification, their purgation happening here on earth versus in purgatory, you know, everybody's in purgatory, you're perfectly attuned to God's will. You cannot not do God's will. So we know purgatory is a great gift, but the sense then would be for this life, or even you and I, Father Mark, you know, the opportunity that we have, or those who are called to the councils, is to have that now, and then, you know, God willing, maybe at the end, you know, it, it goes straight in. You know, it helped me, like, in making the vows, too, is just 
something I'd read from Vita Consecrata, I think, that John Paul's document on religious life was, you know, the religious is called to live that heavenly life now, where there's no giving and taking in marriage, where you, you can't take all this stuff with you. Yeah, <laughs> you no, you can't. You, you do God's will perfectly in heaven. Yeah. Right? And I, that, that helped me because it's like, you know, there's that fear of missing out in our culture. Yeah. Like, you know, this is, uh, but, you know, I, I kind of joked about it, but it was like, you know, if if there's something going to be lacking in heaven there, like, then, it, you know, eternity is going to be a really long time. You know? <laughs> like, I think if Jesus is not enough, yeah, you know, that, that heaven's going to be a long time. It's going to be boring. <laughs> right, yeah, right, yeah. right. Was there another gym in there? Yet? Sure, let's yeah. pull something else out here. All right, so we talked about zeal for the glory of God, which was towards the end. Uh-huh. We talked about mortifications. We talked about obedience. Let's talk about, um, let's see here. Anything on prayer? Or? Oh, yes. Yeah, no, 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 no. Actually, this is there was three chapters on prayer that were so important, and, and they were after the councils. So he talks about prayer in three ways. He talks about prayer... He did a chapter on the efficacy of prayer, encouraging the fact that, you know, your prayers are efficacious. Then he talked about mental prayer, different from vocal prayer. Right. So uh, this is interesting. Why don't we talk about mental prayer for a moment? Okay, so the tradition of the church is to call mental prayer also meditation. I mean, meditation, quiet time with God, uh-huh. uh, that's mental prayer. So when you hear about a lot of people who are now becoming, as you say, mindfulness, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the movement for better health and mm-hmm. practicing meditation in the secular circles seems to be influenced by... Yeah, secular people talk a lot more about meditation. Oh, totally. And, and, and all these guys who are yeah. like, you know, now discovering good health at our age because they partied too much in their 30s <laughs> and 20s and now they're like 54, like you and I or whatever. Uh, they, uh, they're all getting into meditation, you yeah. know, and, uh, which is not a bad thing if yeah. they're secular, don't get me wrong. But um, so prayer is uh, classically, we call it the lifting of the mind and heart to God. Right. Now we have vocal prayer, our rosaries, although the rosary can be very contemplative. I, I have to say that. Uh, there is the divine office that we pray, our, our fathers, our Hail Marys, our, our going to Mass is vocal yeah. prayer, right? But he talks about mental prayer, and he talks about uh, that mental prayer, how to go about it. And he says that mental prayer should have um, not too much preparation, but it shouldn't be unprepared at all, a little <laughs> bit of both. So he talks about two kinds of preparation for mental prayer, for quiet mm-hmm. conversation with God. Uh, now, he calls the first one remote preparation. I'll share this with you. Mental prayer presupposes a remote preparation and approximate preparation, meaning something far away and then something in the moment, obviously. Mm-hmm. Remote preparation is none other than the mortification of our passions and the detachment from the world and from ourselves through humility. It is clear that if our spirit is preoccupied with pleasures and affairs of the world, if our soul is agitated by passions, by affections that are too human, or jealousy, we are not disposed to mental prayer. Now, just real quick, that could even mean for a nun in a monastery, she's more obsessed with seeing what comes through the mail every day. You know, right, I right. know it sounds so benign, yeah, but yeah. but for them, right. that could be a serious attachment that is keeping her yeah. from like, hey, did the mail come? Did the mailman come? Did I get a package? Did, I get a letter? <laughs> did we get a package? What came? What did we buy? You know, right. so um, there can even be even in the monastery these these. 
preoccupations with worldly things. So if we are habitually preoccupied with ourselves, we ignore humility. How can we let ourselves be penetrated by God and hear his voice? Without mortification and humility, the methods of mental prayer are worthless. The best remote preparation is the diligent practice of the three vows, which we detach the soul from pleasures, from the things of the world, and from self, together with patience in bearing the crosses that mortify us. If you are faithful today in avoiding venial sin, gossip, and vain conversations, tomorrow God will be faithful and will let you hear his word mental prayer. So basically telling the nuns this last week that what they do outside the cloister, or outside the choir, excuse me, outside the chapel, really has a deep effect on the quality then of the mental prayer they're going to have on their own with God, even if they're nodding off. Yeah. You know, and don't forget, yeah. I love Bolton Sheen when he said, uh, if you doze off during a holy hour, don't worry. People have been falling asleep since the first holy hour in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, our <laughs> right, Lord right. had to go twice to <laughs> wake them up. So and then I think it was St. Teresa, little flowers, that the Lord loves me when I'm awake and when yeah, I'm asleep. Right. So, um, and then also he even talks about how sleep can be sanctified in the religious life in this mm. book. Yeah, he says, even your sleep, because you're totally consecrated to God. Uh -huh. So that's good news for those of us who doze <laughs> off in mental prayer. Um, however, though, uh, uh, let's talk about the laity who may be listening to us, Father Mark. If you are faithful today in avoiding venial sin, gossip, and vain conversations, tomorrow God will be faithful and will let you hear His word and mental prayer. So for just the average Christian you know, who's trying to live the life and follow Christ, by trying to be more virtuous, keep the commandments, be faithful to your duties of where you are, your family, marriage, whatever, workplace, um, even if you're single or young or single and old and you're taking care of a family member, whatever it may be, um, if you're trying to live that Christian life, then when you go to pick up that rosary the next time or you go to Mass on Sunday or maybe a weekday or a holy day of obligation, or maybe even you just light a candle in your room and you have a picture of Our Lady there or something before you go to bed for 10 minutes, it's going to... It's going to have an. It's going to be connected to what was going on. I know this sounds so one right, on one, right, but right. it's neat how the way he puts it. Okay, then he goes no, from that was the. Oh, go ahead. I to say yeah. something. I think that you know. I remember getting that from Thomas Dubay. He he hit that hard that if you want to grow, you can look at prayer and say, "We want our prayer life to deepen." It's like I, you know, the analogy is marriage, right? You're dating. You have one type of conversation. You're married fifty years. It's a different, deeper conversation, right? And he would emphasize it's not so much technique, you know, just finding the right prayer technique of meditation or whatever, but to live the gospel generously, you know, and have these kind of detachments you're talking about, to have the mortification and everything. That's going to deepen our prayer life, that those two go hand in hand. Hand in hand, yeah. oh yeah. And and it's it's funny, Dubay was a friend of the community, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. He used to come down here mm -hmm. a lot, did he? Yeah. Uh, and he died, I think, while I was... A student brother. He died in Washington, D.C., I yeah. think, at the Little Sisters of the Poor, right, just right. up the road mm -hmm. from us. And uh, I never knew him, but I only know of his reputation. But it was he was really big about the life of prayer, the kind of fire of the heart and yeah, stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He was he was an expert on Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross. Okay, that and, was his specialty. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. wrote uh, books. In fact, Father Patrick was just given a... He was giving a talk on humility. Were you there for that? No. Oh, but, yeah, and he uh, he said... I had more important things to do. <laughs> I can't go to a talk on humility. I don't have time for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, he cited one of Dubay's books on, like, simplicity of life. I can't remember the exact title, but just... Yeah, it, it, I think it was... It applies to all, you know, vocations that, you know, 
we're talking about the concrete steps in a religious life, but you know the lay people too, having that detachment and things, and you know how important that was to the spiritual life. Because you know, as you say, like there's just so many distractions, and it's like I can get caught up or entertainments that you know you you get super stimulated doing worldly things, and then you're supposed to go and pray and contemplate and meditate. And don't forget Saint Teresa of Avila, John the Cross. They had their own difficulties, their own time and place. Yeah. They did not have the amount of advertising that we've had our entire lives right. constantly right. since we were kids. Right. Constantly. Right. Yeah. Um, that's why I remember one of my friars said, I hope God graves on a curve depending upon the times <laughs> in which you live. You know, um, you know, and just think about we're, we're constantly bombarded. Yeah. For all of our modern conveniences and some of the life-extending, wonderful medical things that they would have never even had access to back then yeah. that we do yeah. now. I mean, you can yeah. do a heart transplant, you know, yet they didn't have to deal with, you know, right. what, something like 3,000 images projected upon the average person <laughs> a day, whether it's, you know, advertising for a new car or... You know, a new phone. So. And just even like the Catholic news industry cycle and just uh, how much stuff you can read. There's always some interesting article that's yeah. written and it's just like, it's just endless. It but, is. Uh, and, and even for people like you and I who do do work in media mm -hmm. or we have an active apostolate, it it never stops. And, <laughs> and no, it doesn't. Make it stop. You know? and yeah, you can get yourself like all ginned up, you so can. to speak. And, oh, yeah. Uh, and you lose your peace. And then and, it ruins, and, and frankly, the risk is for us uh, followers of Francis and Dominic, it does impact our time of prayer then. Yeah. So, for instance, I joked around at the beginning of our talk together here, Father Mark, that I think I was more on retreat than the uh, sisters were, you know, <laughs> and there's something to that because yeah. I, I was in this lovely, beautiful, quiet, simple, very simple monastery. Yeah. It's not yeah. elaborate. It's not, an, yeah. it, it's very clean and it's pretty, yeah. but it's simple. And yet I slept pretty good. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I have my own sleeping issues, but uh, I, um, I was able to pray and I had a rhythm and I was like, wow, you know, I, in the middle of it, I was like, this is great. And then you know, last yeah. night I was like, oh, I kind of don't want to leave. <laughs> but now it's great to be back. I have to go back. You know, the active part of me says, okay, back to the apostolate. You know? Yeah. Yeah, even just like to walk around outside out there, there's hardly any traffic. No. You know, it's quiet. And, and with the super moon we had, the blue moon, oh, yeah. um, oh my goodness, I, here I am. It was a warm 78 degrees at like 10 o'clock at night. And the humidity was low two nights ago. And that bright moon, and it blackened all the leaves of the trees. And I felt like I was kind of on some like old Southern movie set. I mean, I, I was actually in the South. You know, I wasn't on a movie set. I only perceive it through the movies. You know, like to kill a mockingbird. Yeah, yeah exactly. I'm, I'm waiting for like Flannery O'Connor to walk out and say, hello, how are you, Father John? Good evening. I'm visiting you from paradise. You there know, is something special about the summer nights in the South. I believe that. And so, no, I, yeah. I got to say, I, I think I can use this word properly. There was a, it was a little enchanting two nights yeah. ago. There was something, Father. Yeah. And, and again, I've, I've spent a little bit of time in the South. I'm usually coming in the bad weather because that's when I can get time off, you know, or for time to get away. Mm -hmm. I've come down to Tennessee and, uh, you know, I've only been to Alabama once before. But so that's, there's something in the air in that. Uh, maybe the old song, <laughs> Southern Nights, right? That was a famous song, <laughs> Southern Nights. Now, that may have been about partying more than that. But um, so there is something to that. Is that kind of like, to talk about creation for a moment down here, um, 
when the humidity breaks and it's still warm in the evening. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it can be pleasant. Yeah, yeah. If you don't have the, which we had that one of those kind of nights last night, night before, it was like, yeah, the wasn't as much humidity. It, the air was drier. It was so pleasant. Yeah. yeah. I Again, it's like 10 o'clock yeah. at night and I stepped out to see the moon and I was like, this is gorgeous out yeah. here. Just, I'm, I don't, I, as I get older, I do understand why people go to warmer climates, but I, I just, Give me 90 degrees, but give me no humidity. There's no humidity. <laughs> but um, there was something to it, Father. One uh, time I, I was, my family's from Louisiana, and I had I'd gone back for a family celebration. And this area was in Alexandria, so we usually wasn't up in the north part of the state, but we were driving home across the northern part. And it is, like, so flat. I don't even know how. To me, there's something about that Louisiana flat. It's like, I don't know, it's like the Mississippi just, flooded over and just deposited all this level sediment, you know, or something. Yeah. But you know what I know is I was driving on this two-lane road just perfectly straight, and I'm just looking into these woods, and they got like the old big oak trees and stuff, and there was, there was something, you just reminded me of it, there was something kind of almost mystical, or there was the depth to it. Because like, you think about it, like you can't go over these little hills and see like in the distance. You know, you just see... There's nothing majestic like the Rockies or even the, the yeah. Vermont Hills like I get to see, you know. But yeah. yeah, there was just like, there was some kind of depth of mystery and you looked into those woods like, what's in there? <laughs> what's yeah, the... yeah. And uh, I don't know, every part of the country has its blessings, you know, yeah. but it... Uh, there's yeah there's just there's something about it all no but, and i by god's grace and mercy i did get to savor that the other night and, yeah you know, it was so yeah. bright you could see your hand in front of you and, yeah you know it was yeah. really remarkable now you um, come out of a radio background that's correct yeah a spin jockey what do they call it so yes yeah, spin. and now it's well now they call it on-air personality but i did before i was uh when i was in high school i met some people who worked at a college radio station uh -huh. a local station and i i thought oh that's kind of neat and I did work in public radio for 15 years. I was a disc jockey. I worked in Boston, Los Angeles, and New Jersey. It Music was, radio. Yeah. You were playing like classical jazz? No. Or? So this is, well, in, in so it's interesting. I, I In New Jersey, these were music formatted stations, but they were basically rock music, right? The one station I worked at was a, a jazz station, but they had blues music on the weekends. Mm. And I got to play, you know, blues and rock and roll have a lot mm -hmm. to go together. So... I started 30 years ago by playing bands that uh, a lot of them were on the East Coast. They hadn't become famous yet, but groups like Dave Matthews Band, Fish, like they call them jam bands now, but some of them went on to great success and they were getting no radio airplay. And so, and they were small. So I started to gravitate towards them. I liked that kind of music. And NPR was playing that? No, this oh. was, so this was uh, college radio, oh, local okay. college okay. radio who eventually we became an NPR affiliate, you know? Mm. So it wasn't like I was connected with, from Washington, that's NPR News, here's Dave Matthews. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm Lachmi Singh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Or Carl Castle, you know, not that I know all, I just happen to, all right, so I'm in radio, I happen to, uh, but um, the- uh, Fresh uh, air. Yeah, fresh air, yeah, Terry Gross. So the, the, the thing that was, um, and then I went to go major, in, and that was in high school. And, yeah. and I went to Catholic high school, and God bless my principal, rest her soul, Sister Mary Brister, my senior year. I had done this during my junior summer. Mm -hmm. And I said, could I hold on to the show? I think I'd like to go study radio, study broadcasting in college. And she said, if you keep your grades up, you can do it. So she let me out on Tuesdays at 2 o'clock. Class got out mm -hmm. at like 2.45, but I got out a little early. And the teacher who of that period, Sister... Marie Michelle or Michelle Marie, she agreed. 
I had Immaculate Heart of Mary sisters out of Philadelphia area. And I, I, I then found the school, Emerson College in Boston, a great broadcasting school. And they had an excellent radio station that broadcasted from Providence, uh, Rhode Island, up to Portland, Maine, out to Worcester, Massachusetts. It, it, we worked heavily with the local community, famous musicians coming in and out, people who would become famous. We had jazz, we had blues, we had rock and roll. I did blues there in the evening. And then um, after I graduated college, I returned to New Jersey and worked in, uh, for a music production company with some music um, festival production. I enjoyed concerts and live events. But I also kept always a foot in radio. I went back to that local community radio station, continued to do broadcasting. And then the good Lord called me around the death of JP2, and that's a whole nother story for another time. But uh, I remember in 2006, I got a call from an old college friend who was in California, the largest uh, jazz and blues radio station in the country. And she said, I need a disc jockey. My, my guy's going away. He's the weekend blues disc jockey. And I know you know the music. Could you substitute, record the shows on the East Coast and FedEx out the CDs? Again, we didn't have SoundCloud, Dropbox, any of these big bandwidth kind of things yeah. back then to send large files. So uh, I'd already had a call into the priesthood and I was hoping to leave in 07. This was fall of 06, September of 06, actually. So 17 years ago this month. And uh, I got to then, but then I, I, I was delayed by my province to go into our novitiate a year. I, I was delayed a year, not because they questioned my vocation, but I've been working like two part-time jobs and they wanted me to just sink in a little bit more. And they wanted to see a little more activity of service in my parish. Mm -hmm. Plus they were getting their largest novice class, Father Mark, in mm -hmm. like 40 years. So it was also kind of like, can we fit this guy in? Do we actually yeah. have a bed for him? Mm -hmm. Providentially, two things happened. That extra year, I got to work for that radio station in California from New Jersey, mm. my parents' garage, literally with the wow. equipment, uh, much like you know we have equipment here now. Um, and I would go out to California about every quarter for a special event or a fundraiser. And then um, uh, my father got quite ill with his Parkinson's, so I had an extra year to help care for him at home. So in a way, I really felt like before the good Lord called me to the Dominicans, it's like, hey, listen, I know you always wanted to work in a big market radio station and work for... I always wanted to stay in public radio because it was more creative. I knew yeah. the money wasn't there, but I didn't want to yeah. do like classic rock commercial radio. Yeah. And uh, so it was kind of like, hey, enjoy these two years with California. And I did. And, uh, and then you're mine, you know. Uh, and but you were working from home. I was working yeah, from okay. home, yeah, because you could record the stuff with a home studio, basically uh -huh. a, a computer editing and a good microphone and a little digital yeah. converter. And then you'd have like the music basically in iTunes mm -hmm. um, and, and, and transferred in, you know. Mm -hmm. And then interestingly enough, by God's providence, and this is kind of a little bit how we're connected here, I did think about the MFVAs and your charism down here before I met the Dominicans uh, called Father Anthony Mary, who's the vocation director at the time, because I thought I have all this training in media Perhaps maybe I should go to an, right. uh, an order mm -hmm. uh, that that specializes in that. Yeah, but yeah. then there was just, I think there was a real Marian invitation to the Dominicans after I met them. And uh, mm -hmm. now here we are, we're hanging out, you know, so, <laughs> so we're doing media together. So uh, yeah. that's been neat. And, 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 and just to share with the audience, our friars ended up, 17 years ago for one hour a week working with Sirius XM, the big satellite radio network. And of course, EWTN's broadcast on channel 120, 130 or 128, we're 129. There is a Catholic channel with original programming on Sirius XM mm -hmm. that was started because of uh, the good work of EWTN. So uh, 
I had actually hoped to get into satellite radio while I was a layman. I had good connections at both companies to work in their blues channels because for the first time, major commercial outlets had specialty channels. And I had a great resume and I had contacts at both XM and Sirius when they were independent at the time. And I sent my demos in and they were like, oh, this sounds good, but mm -hmm. unfortunately we, we, we don't need anybody. We're not hiring. Okay, so I let that mm -hmm. go. God's will, the vocation began to mm -hmm. discern and come. But then, you know, fast forward to nine years ago when my province said, hey, can you take over our satellite radio show? I was like, wow, I, I had to become mm -hmm. a friar. But like I told you, I think I said this to you, uh, to actually get on satellite radio, I had to make profess the councils. You know, I had to become poor, chaste, and obedient to get on satellite radio. But my father used to always say this, and my father was a practical man, but he supported us in our studies. And he's, and I think I maybe said to this to you guys last week when I was visiting, I said, you know, my father said, why did we have to pay $125,000 over four years for you to learn how to talk behind a microphone? <laughs> <laughs> and now, good, yeah. uh, God willing, my father being in paradise, hopefully, with our Lord and our Lady, uh, well, uh, hey, Dad, it's for the Gospels. You know, now it's for the, the, the preaching of the kingdom. Is that the show that you do, a, like a, a reflection on the scriptures? Correct. Yeah. So the show is called Word to Life. Uh, we, it's usually myself and another friar, but because I relocated out of New York and we're not in our studios anymore after the pandemic, mm -hmm. we still have Sirius XM studios, but specialty shows are like this. They're pre-recorded now. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I've been flying solo a lot on the show for the last 10 years. It's one hour. What we do is we go over, usually there's an opening to the show. because You about, fill an hour by yourself. I do like three 15-minute segments. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, and, and it, usually the first segment will be, hey, like for instance, this week's show, welcome to the month of September. I hope you're well. Um, you know, and I might talk about its liturgical items, you know, right. uh, you know, brief mention the Holy Fathers in Mongolia. So, I mean, not like a news thing, but just like a little, uh, this week we're going to look at, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the beginning of ordinary time, right. whatever, you right. know, and in September it's dedicated to Our Lady of Sorrows, whatever. We take a break, come back, we talk about the first and second reading, mm -hmm. and then take a break and come back and talk about the gospel. Mm -hmm. So, uh, That'll be one hour a week, and and ideally it's myself and another friar. And actually, I'm going to be returning to having other friars with mm -hmm. me, but because the show is not about me, it's not my show. Mm -hmm. It's our province's show. But I've been the custodian, if you will. You know, similar to Life on the Rock. It's not your show, Father Mark's right. show. Right. It's EWTN show, but mm -hmm. you're the current custodian, right. if you will, or host. Right. You know, mm -hmm. and. And I think that's important for us to remember in our life that it's not ours, you know, it's the apostolates, so yeah. to speak, even though there might be a, you know, uh, uh, you know, Father Mark show one day or whatever, you know, yeah, <laughs> Father John yeah. show. But, but that being said, um, yeah, so uh, doing radio and, and ending up here uh, and using media, um, it's, uh, it's what God ended up doing, you know, it's, yeah. it's quite fascinating. Now, here's something crazy, though. I don't know I, if I may comment on this. You and I, uh, both Gen Xers, I know I said that before, but so we've been in broadcasting really almost 30 years, you since you joined here and myself as well, even through your formation, but just being mm -hmm. around a Catholic mm -hmm. broadcast entity. You know what's amazing, Father Mark? Now, do you ever think about this? In the digital age, really since smartphones and now these online platforms like YouTube and social media, Instagram, Facebook, everybody's in broadcasting now. Yeah. You don't need special training anymore. Right. You don't. Mm -hmm. It, that blows my mind. I, yeah. I'm not trying to sound like the, the old guy in the room who can't accept where things are going, but <laughs> it's kind of like I always thought about like if it was the transition from like 
the monks uh, who had memorized the Psalter for the divine office. And then all of a sudden, some guy shows up with dead animal skins they're writing on. And they, and they have now manuscripts and breveries and, and, and parchment. And be like, how dare you use those? You know, we have to memorize the Psalter. No, we can write on animal skins. You know, yeah, yeah. Well, you know it hit me in a deeper way. Two points. I, I know, one, like, I, I remember going to World Youth Day. You know, I've been involved with the coverage of World Youth Day for a while. And, and going to Madrid and just, being in with the press corps a little bit, and then, man, they just seemed like they were so kind of cynical and just completely unimpressed by what was going on, you know, and just not getting it. Huge generalization, but sure. yeah, that's kind of life. But then you fast forward a couple World Youth Days, I just remember in Panama, it was like the press media room was just like filled with all these kind of people like that, like devout Catholic guys who had whatever, a YouTube channel or Whatever. Laptops, yeah. field recorders, yeah. digital editors, good mics. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. That was a big change. And um, but even you know, another point that hit me was we had promoted the movie, um, um, the Mark Wahlberg with the priest Father Stu. Sure. And uh, and I was so happy. You know, we went out to the uh, to the big. The first showing, what do they call that? I'm forgetting. Multiplex. Oh, premiere. The premiere, right. And uh, so got to interview Wahlberg and uh, and then the writer, director of it. And then uh, and then I thought, wow, this is great. And I really I really like because we put it like a, an hour package. And I got to interview the friends and talk to the friends, families that knew him well, you know, priest friends and and even some priests that were had like a license to give a reflection on his life. I got to talk to the family, interview the family. And I thought, well, this is great. It's an hour thing. You got a good feel for his life and all this. And then I come back home and I just see, you know, Wahlberg's like on all these shows. Sure. <laughs> it's like and you don't feel special anymore. Right. Yeah, like yeah. He was on everything. I mean, people I'd never even heard of, you know, and uh and I thought, wow, you know, times are changing. Yeah, you know? and uh, it, it, it's it's in the hands of. It's no longer just people who could get special training. You used yeah. to have to get licensed by the FCC. Yeah. Yeah. Um, know how to have broadcast equipment. All of yeah. these things, and yeah. and that's all right. upside down now. Yeah. Now the question, though, too, if I may say, and this is not to pat ourselves on the back, but here's EWTN, and it's now going into its fifth decade by God's generosity. Um, we've been doing the show almost 20 years now on Sirius XM. Even satellite radio, Catholic satellite radio is still going in almost into its third decade mm -hmm. or finishing up its second. The fact that all of these Catholic media people, um, the perseverance it does take to keep putting out content, to keep yeah. doing it. And that, that's something where people might get tired of it after yeah. a while or yeah. of, of their own work. And, and, and Well, that was the other thing, if I may digress for a moment, but it's worth a similar note. We talk about part. I talked about participating in what social media is. Right, like you right, choose to enter right. into that world that people are in now, by our accounts and what we post. But then, f even though there's great ideas for the apostolate and great evangelical ideas, it is a lot of work to keep constantly creating new content, yeah. new ideas, new editing, new yeah, new little right. bylines, and it's it can it it's not easy if you want. <laughs> I don't know, you know, or I, listen, if you just want to take a picture of your steak and put it up, all right. Just say thanks be to God for dinner tonight. It was donated, you know. Uh, but no, well, yeah. like during COVID, you, know, you had all these masses pop up, you know, that were being, and I, I've ever listened to this show, these two great guys I respect, you know, they're working Catholicism and stuff. And I, 
and they were saying, yeah, so-and-so has got this mask, he's doing this, whatever. But like you said, it, it takes a lot of work to keep it up, you know, so after COVID, it starts to fail. But I'm like, I was kind of like saying, why don't you guys mention EWTN? You know, we've been here <laughs> doing the Daily Mass. 40 years? Don't it's worry like, about it. Yeah, yeah, like 92, and it's like, uh, there was like no reference to that. And uh, But I know it did, I mean, I think, that's kind of the gift of EWTN right now through donations of people. We can have a lot of infrastructure to have a choir there every day yeah. to have it lit properly. And that's also you know? the apostolate. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. important. And, and yeah. the strength in numbers. You yeah. Know? yeah. So, so it is unique and it's yeah. a great gift to the church. And you yeah. and I have gotten to do Catholic media in our day and age, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it, and too, I, I just realized the talent, like I've, like this one podcast, I, I was thinking, man, this this is a young woman, and uh, and she had to let it go. I think her family and stuff needs and attention was needed, but it's like she was talented. Like her interviewing skills, I was like, whoa. I mean, the the kind of the freshness, the snappiness, sure. the everything. So there's so a many true talent, true gift. Yeah, 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 yeah. and. Um, so anyway, but yeah. I know we got to get you moving here. And um, well, this was a delight. Yeah, uh, and thank you for, again for the hospitality and and the listeners. And thank you to your work, Mother's work. I mean, EWTN did influence me significantly in the satellite radio in my car. You know, when I was driving uh, around discerning. So, yeah. uh, uh, and thank God for Francis and Dominic being friends. You know, yeah. yeah. Well, praise God. Yeah. Amen. Mm-hmm.